Leonard Skinner went on first. So then, of course, you had the opposite. There was this guy who was standing behind my brother and I and the friends that we brought. And he must have been like seven foot twelve. I mean, this guy was a an absolute tower. And he was already drunk by the time he got to the show. And he was holding his beer up in the air. And the whole night, the whole time during Leonard Skinner's set, because they played first, he was yelling, ZZ! And, you know, sloshing his beer around and basically spilling it all over people. He spilled it on our friends. And uh, so when, every time I hear this Queen ZZ Bad Nusty, I always think of the seven foot something guy standing behind us at that concert 20 years ago yelling ZZ all the way through Leonard Skinner's set. Shoot the core, cast. Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is a family-friendly shmup-themed podcast that thinks enemy weapons are like Pokemon. You gotta catch them all. <laughs> I am Addicted, and with me I have... Metal Fro, also known as the Game Boy Guru. And RF Generation is the place to be. RFGeneration.com, who uh, we're affiliated with on the podcast... We have a great community there. We've got uh, excellent forums. And, uh, of course, that's where you can go and sign up for the Shmup Club Game of the Month. And then also go on and uh, do the regular community playthrough. We also have articles on the front page that many of us are contributors to. A huge database of games where you can catalog your game collection and create wish lists. Plus, we have a Discord that's active and we chat in there. And lots of other cool stuff going on. So make sure you check it out, rfgeneration.com, and it's all free. Excellent. Now, my favorite part of RF Generation definitely has to be the 2019 slash 2020, maybe 2021, Beat Every NES Game Challenge. I participated in that in 2019. I had a lot of fun trying to beat Tiny Toon Adventures. And if you're looking up for a challenge or maybe a little bit of something to do, as you shelter in place, it's a good site to check out and come join us and beat every NES game. Yeah, I need to jump back into that. I, you know, I, I contributed some last year, but um, but I definitely need to uh, jump back in because I know there are a couple of games on the list yet that I, I own and uh, need to try and, and scratch a couple more items off. Yeah, too bad Colored Dinosaur is already taken. Oh man, darn the luck! I know you'll huh. just you'll just have to take something easy like Dirty Harry, right? I don't have that one, so oh, Dirty Harry is notoriously hard to do. It's it's uh, Enigma wrapped up in a riddle, wrapped up in a quagmire. It's uh, oh, there's a great uh, angry video game episode on that. Not family friendly on that one. Disclaimer, but. It's a great episode. It, it, it's one of those things that's like, where the heck do I go? What am I supposed to be doing? What is this thing supposed to do in here type games? Ah, uh, okay. 
So, you know, and a decent chunk of the NES library. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of questions, we've got a question of the month. Yeah. Uh, I put out this question a month on the on the uh, Shoot the Corecast Twitter account, at Shoot Corecast, and we got the most insane and awesome response that we've ever had for a question of the month. Uh, so who knew that copying the playcast with a question of the month would yield these kinds of dividends? Uh, but seriously, uh, thank you to everyone who put in responses and... Um, after what an after what an overwhelming response we got this month if if next month is the same we may have to scale it back slightly and uh you know cherry pick some of the responses because we had so many well it's okay as long as we don't go on for an hour and to an hour and a half talking about concert and music we'll be able to fit it all in oh okay yeah that that helps uh so (laughs) the question of the month is what is a mechanic in shooting games that you don't like and would do away with forever? And we definitely brought the salt uh, from several of the people who follow the account. So right off the bat, Nefarious Wes, at Nefarious underscore Wes, he says, speed power-ups. Can't stand that uh, crap, I'll say. I like adjustable speed at any point during the game great example of why I don't like it is in Gradius 2 Famicom. I only like two speed power-ups, but that won't cut it during the boss rush. Then I'm too fast for the rest of the game. Yeah, I would have to agree. That's something that is sort of a... I mean, it's a hallmark of this series, but it's something that as you saw, as Shmups evolved, it really doesn't need to be and there. I always jokingly refer to it as rowing across the stars. It's not one of my favorites either. I prefer to have one speed. Well, I should say a variable speed, but I usually, you know, like Einhander or within the game of the month here, Gaius, prefer to just set it to as fast as you can go and then focus my attention on the maneuverability of the ship. If you're going to be doing with something where you, you have different speeds on there, make them adjacent to the different ship types so you have your fast you have your slow something like that don't make it so that i if i die then all of a sudden i have to spend the next five minutes trying to readjust my speed on there it's it just take kills the fun pretty quickly i think it's a relic of early scrolling shooters that probably needs to go away uh, I do like either variable speed or the kind of two-speed thing that you get with a lot of Danmaku games where you have one speed and then you have a slower speed when you're doing a focus shot kind of a thing. Um, I don't mind some shoot 'em ups later that have a good base speed and then there are speed-up power-ups that you could get that are optional that if you like a faster ship or... You know, there's an area in the game later that you know you're going to need it for. You can pick one up. Um, but when the base speed feels like you're like you're wading through a vat of pudding, um, that's a problem. So th- I'll have to agree with Wes on this one. I could just see you dying in uh, Gradius. You know, it's pudding time. <laughs> All right, we have one from at Wavy Amar. 
It says holding a button for a sub weapon rather than having an extra button. And I can definitely see this on here. I think that it probably goes back maybe in some ways to the JAMA standard when you only had three. But even so, a lot of the schmucks in there usually have like a two button affair. It's really weird that they had the option for the third button and just didn't utilize it. Speaking like 19, you know, back to 1984 and 19, 1984's 1982. Oh, sorry, 1984's 1942. Mm. And dealing with that, where you had one button that was to shoot and the other button was loops. Or with 1943, it seems to be... I don't know if there was a particular reason why they went with that. Maybe for simplicity or something. It just... It's really odd design choice. Yeah, there's a couple of games like that where... I'm trying to think of... I, I want to say it's Darius Force or Supernova on the, on the Super NES. Where you have one button that is your laser weapon and then you have one button that's your sort of missile or laser sub weapon. Uh, and so if you want to do rapid fire of all that at the same time, uh, you have to hold down two buttons. I sort of get why they did it in that game because of how the weapon system is structured. And I, I'm assuming that we'll get to that one at some point and get into more detail of that. But that kind of drives me nuts. Oh, definitely. So I get it. All right, you want to take the next one? Yeah, so uh, uh, Shmups and Stuff on Switch, or at nshmups, says, Not a mechanic as such, but scores going beyond the billions frustrate me, especially if there are no commas or other indications to help break it down. And, you know, again, this is one of those things where, yeah, a little bit of salt coming out, and there are going to be some people salty about that answer, but I kind of get that. I mean, there's a novelty factor about those kinds of high scores that's kind of cool. Um, you know, when I first played Gigawing in the arcade and I saw how ridiculously large the scores were, I was like, what is this? And, and what's with these ridiculous scores? I thought it was kind of cool. And of course, there are a lot of shmups now where, uh, especially a lot of the cave shmups, you know, there's been a lot of... Uh, a lot of talk around uh, the scene of a lot of cave shmups with exploiting certain things within the game, uh, boss milking or different things, and people getting counter stops on some of these games where they are literally running the score up as far as the programming of the game will allow it to be calculated. And then essentially, at that point, you don't get any more score. So it's interesting to think about I suppose it depends on what the developer's trying to accomplish with that. Um, because obviously, if if you're just playing a game straight and you're not really doing any kind of strategy or you're not engaging in the score system, your score is probably going to be relatively small unless you just sort of luck your way into, you know, a better score by occasionally getting something right. Um, but for the people who... Uh, who really enjoy those kinds of more complex scoring systems, you know, that's their bread and butter. So I kind of see both sides of it. For casual players, yeah, I can see how that would be kind of annoying. But for for score chasers, I understand why those kinds of higher score thresholds are are fun. Yeah, I can I can see both as well. The 
least it's not as uh, fun killing as the. Have you heard of the PC Engine game War of the Dead? No. Okay, it's not a shmup. It, it's sort of like a uh, very early side-scrolling. Pre- I know a lot of people talk about uh, Sweet Home being the inspiration for Resident Evil, but this is earlier. This this is very proto uh, horror game, but it had a problem where it didn't have a uh, counter stop, and it counted your score as part of your experience. So what could happen is if you spent too much time playing the game. You could actually over level, and then you would round the counter. So you go from like level ninety nine, and you end up at level zero. And then instantly, you, I mean, you you would just gimp yourself pretty quickly on there, making the game impossible to finish. Wow. So I, I I'm thankful there's nothing like that, but it's definitely something that that you, you could I could see both sides on. And if you have a chance to check out, it's only on the PC Engine, so if you have a EverDrive or you want to check it out in emulation, take a look at War of the Dead. It's also pretty cheap. I believe like $20 or less complete in box. Huh. Cool. All right. And the next one comes from us at Zoido, a.k.a. T.O.B. It said the power-up bar in the Gradius series. You know, I definitely would have to agree. I prefer being able to... M- manage that they definitely got better in the later part of the series where you could change that around and make it so those are I'm trying to think of was if it was Gradius 5 I'm trying to remember the exact one where they allowed you to change their maybe it was Gradius Guide N that was the first one that allowed you to do it do you know off the top of your head three three on the Super Famicom and Super NES gave you the ability to granularly choose what your options were um but right. I think uh, not to actually starting like, with... put it first, though, right? You uh, the so you not, it gave the option to choose what your options would be, the rotate and stuff. But the one that actually gives the option ability to put like, hey, I want to put speed last. I'm trying to remember if that was Gaiden if, or if that was. Oh yeah, I don't remember which one that was. I know five has pre-built loadouts that you can choose from. I think it's Gaiden that allows you to. <clears throat> put those in any order that you want. Right. I'm sure I'll, I can find it later, but but it's definitely a point of irritation and having I can understand why they did it having it on there, but it, just having immediately to deal with speed as we mentioned, and then the next one always has to be missile, and then you, three, it really kills the pacing of the game once you've depleted your first life. Right. Uh, at Sarathums or Sean C says lack of training modes and save states, lack of online leaderboards, and uh, he says a real one though, lock on systems on shmups. There are a lot of mechanics I've not liked over the years and have come around to, so this may be one of them. I uh, swear that he's channeling Mark MSX on that one from Electric Underground with the lack of training modes and safe states, lack of online reading <laughs> boards. <laughs> yeah, those are those are definitely hot buttons for Mark. The, I got to push back on the lock-on system, though, because the Ray series and uh, Suki Goden Tai, I mean, those are great games. So, hey, to each their own, but... I can't, uh, I can't, I can't back your play on those. You know, with the lock-on systems, there's one game, and even though it's more shmup adjacent, that 
really comes to mind is Panzer Dragoon. That without a lock-on system in that game, you really lose at least a quarter of the feel of and play of that game. Oh, absolutely. I would say that it's an uh, absolute necessity for Spongebob. Oh, and uh, here's another one for you. The uh, technical soft one, the um, very expensive Hyperduel. Oh, Hyperduel sure. is another one that would definitely be really changed up if it didn't have on there. I think that lock-on systems, while not needed for shmup today, definitely have their place and were integral and necessary system to have in a mid-90s shmup. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are enough good games that have been done with lock-on systems over the years that it has, that that mechanic has earned its place among the the shmup mechanic, you know, I won't say Hall of Fame, but, you know, something that should be regarded as... It's something that's more of a mechanic and less of a gimmick. Right. And there, and I completely agree. It's Although you could sort of say that your focus shot is in some ways lock-on or t- variant of the lock-on system. Sure. But, you know, again, to each their own, and I understand completely why you think it might just sort of be a little bit easy mode because you're just t- hovering a mouse cursor over something and double-clicking in some, in some ways. Right. I, was, I would say we're really very dependent upon the game, but I like it, in my personal opinion. All right, so on to the next one, at Cloudy Music, Lack of Auto Fire. And this one could be taken in many different ways, too. Mark's take on there is if it was built into the game on there or enhances it in a way, then it should be enabled or should be allowed. I think the same thing, too. I, I If I have a twin Famicom... Uh, with rapid fire that's built in, you bet I'm going to use it for playing Gradius 2 or any of those other shmups on there. I, or the Turbo Graphics, looking at that, or, or your later PC engine, like the Core Graphics 2. All of those came standard with auto fire. I don't believe it cheating for you to actively use, use what was built into the system. Yeah, and I would say, generally speaking, I would agree. I do think there are some games that, depending on the other mechanics that are in play or um, the way that the game is designed, auto-fire might not always make sense, but where it makes sense, I would agree. I just turned 43, and I have no desire to get Carpal Tunnel, so while I will occasionally go nuts with hammering a button on a joystick... You know, I can do that on my good joystick that I bought um, that has Sanwa buttons and has, uh, you know, a short throw. And it's not a big deal because I'm only going to play for an hour or so a night when I do that. And, you know, I'm not injuring myself too much, but I don't want to hammer on an NES pad or a Sega Genesis controller. I want to just hold the button down. <laughs> so when I have the ability to use auto fire, I'm going to use it. And if you think it's cheating, oh well. You just made me start thinking of uh, a new idea for a gamer product. Takahashi Majin's Carpal Tunnel Syndrome Simulator. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yes. 
Uh, at Sprite Mix says, Checkpoint systems. I'm a big advocate for instant respawning upon a death. And I gotta say, I'm with you on that, I think in most instances. There are some games that are designed specifically for checkpoints or, you know, things like Gradius or R-Type where they design them uh, in such a way that at the checkpoint you're going to have an opportunity to power up again in some way. Um, so in those instances, I don't think it's too bad, but particularly for games where the stages are longer and so then the checkpoints become punitive or a game where, you know, when you die, there may be a power-up or two that spawns that you can go and pick up right away, something like a Raiden, um, that kind of a thing. Uh, yeah, that's going to make that's going to make that experience flow a lot better and it's just going to make the the game feel better because you're not really breaking up the action you're just jumping right back into the fray and after a few iframes you're back to you're back into the action so yeah i would tend to agree with that on the whole yeah i agree with you fro i think that the Having a instant action works really well for most games. However, some of the game, the classic games, such as you mentioned, R Type and Gradius, there's an Parodius, there's a another game that we just recently covered. Well, if, I shouldn't say recently; if it, it feels like so long ago now. But uh, Grid Seeker, that game, if you had instant respawns on that game, it would just be. So terrible because those bosses, you'd be sitting there with your pea shooter for at least 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes, just trying to take down a single boss. Mm. All right. Yeah. The next one comes to us from Spark 79 also known as Brandon Guerrera. The power of system in games like Truxton, Fire Shark, Dragon Spirit, and Dodon Pachi, where you have to collect a certain amount of power up icons, two, three, or even five. To level up your main weapon one level, and when you die, you gotta waste time to build it back from base level. Yeah, I, I could definitely see on there where you're. I'm trying to think of aside from Dodonpachi or Rain Spirit, Fire Shark, or Truxton. Uh, <clears throat> when you're trying to deal with different, I am drawing a little bit of a blank here. Thinking of a shmup that I recently played that does the same. I, I guess you could say that our uh, shmup for next month in some ways steel vampire is sort of along this way thankfully allows you to save it so they learn from that do you have some thoughts on this bro yeah i mean the examples that that brandon gave i would tend to agree with truxton and fire shark are both great games but yeah it's it's annoying to have to collect so many power-up icons just to move up one level uh, it's different in something like a series of compile games where the like the P icons that drop or in something like um, uh, like blazing lasers where you've got those purple orbs and you collect so many to move up to the next level when those kinds of things are plentiful and you have the opportunity to power up semi-frequently uh, that's one thing but when you only have a handful of these things in, in specified locations scattered throughout the level, then it becomes an exercise in frustration 
Uh, and of course, these are games that require a certain amount of memorization, so there's an element of that too. But yeah, it, it, it becomes a bit of an exercise in frustration to get most of the way through the level and, oh look, I just collected the fifth power-up and now I have twice the amount of firepower and, oh, five seconds later and I'm dead. And at that point, sometimes, yeah, it feels like, what's the point? Why am I even continuing? other than to play a little bit further and see what else the level has in store. So, yeah, it, I understand where he's coming from, and I would tend to agree that when you have to collect multiple power-ups just to move up one level, that gets old. Yeah, well, I guess in some ways it's a variant or evolution of the Gradius power-up, right? In the evolution of Gradius Syndrome? Kind of. All right, I'll take kind of. Go on to the next one, please. <laughs> yeah. So, at John PV says, Sidebar stuff that the game wants you to pay attention to. Not the gadgets like M2 ads, but more something like Raiden 5. With all the story stuff going on while I'm trying to dodge bullets and ships. Leave me the F alone. And of course, there was some discussion on this. And so, um, DJ PlaySchool uh, responded to this and then... And then John responded to DJ Play School and said, you will keep hearing jokes about South American coffee and you'll like it. Oh, you missed an enemy? I will berate your performance in between coffee jokes on screen. <laughs> and he says, I love Raiden 5 and hate it so much at the same time. <laughs> uh, and then he also says, I wanted to add but ran out of space. I loathe vertical games without a tape mode. Why, Raiden 5? Why? Tape mode. Uh, <laughs> tape mode. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm feeling your pain on that a little bit, John. I I understand why they didn't do it because the way that that Moss designed the game was designed specifically to use the stuff that they put in the on the sides, especially the stuff on the left side, like the cheer notifications and the score tracker and you know, your your weapon power-up levels and all of that stuff. Um, I think there's probably a more elegant way they could have done it so that they could have done a vertical mode on it, especially since they ported it to Switch, which, of course, would give those of us with the flip grip the ability to, to play that in a, a more usable way. I mean, some of the bullets in that are so small on the switch a screen that it's just impractical to try and play it in handheld mode so i get what you're saying um obviously that was by design from moss but i think in general you're right i mean vertical games that are designed with that in mind unless they're designed as a like a vertizontal where it scrolls vertically but you know it's something more like um what was the other one that moss did caladrius uh, you know, that's designed in such a way that it's vertical scrolling, but it uses the wide play field. Um, or like the Vasara collection, the Vasara t uh, Timeless, I think it's called, the Timeless mode. Um, you know, those are designed with that kind of aspect ratio in mind. Or like some of the some of the Capcom uh, 90s shmups, like, uh, like Gunbird 2, or not Gunbird 2, uh, what am I thinking of? Gigawang or Mars Matrix, or 1944 The Loopmaster. Uh, those were all vertical shmups that were designed with a 
a Yoko or a horizontal monitor orientation because of the cabinets that they were going in. So I don't think it's that I don't think it's that bad. Raiden 5 might seem like a more egregious example, um, but I think there are probably fewer games like that um, outside of console ports on, say, 8 and 16-bit systems. And so it's it's less of an issue now, but yeah, I get it. Yeah, I mean, it was neat for them to try and put in a cheer system. I would have definitely liked to see Tate's support as well. In the cheer system, you might as well just have it say, you know, like and subscribe <laughs> or something on there. And that would have been about as useful a gadget and something. It was neat, just sort of something for them to try. The M2 ports really nail it with useful gadgets, and this is just sort of a way for them to <clears throat> try and take it and make it into something useful. And yeah, they didn't really succeed. The plot itself is very... Uh, well, I mean, it's always been about craziness and never intended to make sense. So I guess they might as well just go B-movie with coffee and circuits. Yeah. I mean, it could have been all the font for all the plot and the reading through could have been in windings and had the same effect on the gameplay, right? <laughs> yep. So I, I, t- I totally get it. It would have been a nice feature to have, but... I'm pretty certain that they wanted to do a quick and dirty port because they need to get stuff done. And shmups, unfortunately, just don't make money as much like they used to. You're going to have your hardcore crowd, but outside of that, it's going to be hard to recoup the investment costs. So why put in the extra effort unless you're M2, who I'm sure takes a loss on this stuff? Probably, yep. As depressing as that is to say. Yeah. All right. Our next one is from Need New Shorts, a.k.a. JB. Well, hopefully you get some shorts soon. Not having weapons fire continuously when the button is held down, or if not that, lack of auto-fire. Oh, second for lack of auto-fire. My second favorite shmups have the centipede and gun neck. Both continue to fire if you hold the button down. And the new Bit Blaster XL has a constant auto-fire option. Very cool. Yep. <clears throat> uh, Maz, or uh, at Maz6708, 6804 says a lot of good answers already i will go maybe a little unpopular here boring long and repetitive boss milking like the original esp raid or radiant silver gun they simply destroy the flow of the game and for a shmup the tempo is of the utmost importance to me of course you can ignore it and speed kill the boss but for score they are usually mandatory boss milking have to be creative are creatively challenging and not drag for too long. I have the feeling this one will be hugely unpopular. <laughs> and I don't, I guess I don't really have an opinion on this one so much. I think if the boss milking gets excessive, then I would find that boring. Um, but I do think it's fun to do things like picking apart bosses uh, or that kind of a thing. I understand the Esperate example because I want to say the. Uh, from what I've heard, uh, the only way to get really, really high scores in that game is to milk bosses for a really long time. You know, and if that's the only way to get a really high score, like sitting in a boss for 20 minutes, uh, picking off missiles and things that it shoots out, or popcorn enemies that come along because the bosses don't time out, then yeah, I'm I'm not going to play that game for score. Or I'm going to play that game for 
for score, but in a less serious way. Um, because those kinds of things I'm not interested in. But uh, I could see how some people might find that interesting or, you know, a way to additionally challenge themselves. You know, so, sure. I think it's probably on a case-by-case basis. All right. Our next comment comes to us from at Quint. Quentin won glitch scoring mechanics like empty lock and Ketsui. Yeah, the empty lock is definitely a glitch on there. However, it's something that I hate to say it, but you're gonna you're gonna need it in order to get those high scores again. I, I wish that there would be a differentiation or maybe some sort of patch where you can turn it on and off. Would be nice to have a separation in the leaderboards for that. But it's again one of those things that if it's built into the game, no matter if it's a glitch or not, people are gonna take advantage of it and. You're going to have to decide on a case-by-case basis or person-by-person basis if you're going to use it and how much it affects you. Personally, I would like to see things more as a game of skill than learning how, than exploiting systems. It, just like with pinball, it gets really exciting when you see somebody who is truly skilled and knows what they're doing and can sh- show you how the table plays versus somebody who goes... Oh yeah, if you do this, this, and this, you can glitch it and then score an extra 90 million points. It, it uh, I get some same thing for someone who is really good in sports. If you see them knowing them, like, or I guess you could say too, someone who's seen it in front of like American Idol or uh, dealing with uh, The Voice, when they start seeing it really hard song by Whitney Houston and you can tell that they have a great vocal range and you know it's really hard to do you're impressed versus just somebody who can who can sing a pop song really quickly and really well yeah I kind of see where you're where Quentin is coming from I mean I think that's a valid a valid take there are definitely people who find those kinds of mechanics interesting and you know, it's another layer of being able to play the game and get even more out of it than what even probably the developers intended. You know, I, I messed around with Empty Lock a little bit in Ketsui, and it's not something that I'm probably going to pursue that much because I don't see myself reaching the level of hardcore score master kind of a thing. But yeah, I mean, I would tend to agree that that uh, playing the game as much as it's intended to be played is kind of the way I like to approach it. I say that, and of course, I sort of bucked that trend with this month's game, which we'll get into. But um, but yeah, I, I understand how when the scoring becomes nothing but finding a way to exploit a glitch or or an exploit in the game, and that's the only way to get the really stupid high scores... I could see how that would be frustrating for someone coming in where either they don't want to learn the glitch, they just want to play the game straight, or they feel like, well, this wasn't even the way the game was meant to be played, but that's the only way to do it if I want to have any, uh, you know, any real way of competing. So I could see that. Uh, at easy racer, at easy underscore racer, says cycling power-ups with no way to control the cycling 
super frustrating to go out of the way to collect a specific weapon type only to have it change a split second before you collect it. Then you're usually stuck with something you don't want until you can repeat the process. And yeah, I understand where, where Easy Racer is coming from. I've had that frustration many times playing uh, the Raiden series and some of the other games that kind of came out of that era where your, your power-up changes colors or the icon changes. You know, I had some of that frustration with Gridseeker, even though the pattern was fairly predictable and I could kind of get to where I sort of knew when the when the power-up icon was going to change to a certain color or a certain type to sort of plan it out and, and do that. But yeah, I, I get that because it, it can be frustrating when you're like, oh, that'll upgrade me to the, the next power-up level, but then instead of doing that, it just changes your weapon. And it it kind of ruins your flow. Yeah, I, I definitely had the same problem with Grid Seeker and within the Raiden series, how you're trying to c connect those and just at the last section or at the last second, it would change into something else. I believe with the Raiden, maybe I'm wrong, wrong with it. It's been a little bit since I played it, but you can actually shoot it to change it. Oh, I don't remember that. Maybe it's with some of the later writing games. That could be. Or maybe it's just wishful thinking. I'm not sure. Huh. All right, our next one comes from the uh, Maniacs over at the Collector Cast. Limited continues. If I want a credit feed to have fun, just let me. And I would definitely have say that it, that's something that I really think that M2 nailed perfectly in their ports where you have it so each time you play you earn another credit until you get to free play I think that works really really well in fact that's even used in the uh, the um, Thunder Force game that sh pseudo sequel that shall not be named uh, by our favorite um, Devil Engine Oh, right. Devil Engine does the same thing there. But, uh, yeah, and they, they did that in Gradius V, too. Yep. Um, back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would tend to agree. I understand why a lot of these games didn't have unlimited continues during the NES era and even during the 16-bit era where uh, in the height, during the height of game rentals and things like that or whatever, you know, you didn't you didn't want to sell a game for 30, 40, 50 bucks and then have your kids, you know, have the kids credit feed through it once and put it away and have the parents write angry letters to uh, pr publishers going, well, you know, I, I spent 50 bucks on this thing and my kid played it once. You know, it's like if, if the game has two credits, three credits, four credits, whatever, and your kid actually has to spend time with it and get good at it before they can beat the game, even if they have to to feed the number of maximum credits that you're allotted, that's still they're having to put forth effort. So I kind of get it from that standpoint. But yeah, in today's world, if it's an arcade port or a home console shmup, whatever, yeah, let people f credit feed and let them play the game the way they want to play it. I would agree. Yeah, you don't want people to credit feed their way through Color of Dinosaur. Jeez, shame. <laughs> uh, 
at the single banana uh, host of the R of Generation playcast says items only good for points that provide no upgrade value. Remove these in every game that isn't distinctly point based. And uh, that's a hot take. I- I'm going to disagree. Uh, I do think that it's fun to collect items that are point based. I mean, you're talking about all kinds of shoot 'em ups that would would be a lot less fun for me. If everything from old school caravan shooters to things like modern Danmaku games where, uh, you know, a game like Crimson Clover, which we played uh, last year, where you're where when you're taking out enemies using the break system and you're getting all these stars. Now, of course, you're not necessarily having to go and, and move to the screen to collect those. A lot of those are being auto-collected. Um, but, you know, you got everything in between. The old caravan-style shoot-em-ups where you have to go and fly over an, an item to grab it. Or newer games where you can sort of auto-collect some things. But I I enjoy that mechanic in a lot of these games. So I'm going to have to respectfully disagree with that. I I think there's fun in in grabbing those things. I mean, even as far back as playing Pac-Man in the arcade as a kid, I always tried to go for the fruit in the center or those kinds of things because, to me, that was part of the fun. You know, when I read items good only for points that provide no upgrade value, to me that screams modern games and modern DLC. It doesn't scream, you know, shoot 'em ups on there. I, I would have to say that I enjoy... This, like in Tiger Heli, do you remember shooting the uh, top of the house on there to get that the special little item for points? Or when you were dealing with yeah. with Raiden, where you had to shoot, I believe it was Raiden, you, you had, uh, Raiden 5, where you had to shoot the uh, specific spots in order to get that out. And that's been a staple of the series for quite a while. Yeah. yeah or even I even mean, with 1942 and the, uh, what the heck is that thing called? Maui-chi? Oh, Yashichi? Yashichi, thank you. I would probably name some sort of uh, dessert base. Like, uh, uh, Thankfully, I didn't call it the manicotti or something. That's <laughs> 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 Italian. Thank you for providing that. It, it's, yeah, it's neat to have those little interesting bonus items that are worth points on there that you can find. I, It's definitely a throwback, but it's something that gives a little bit of extra flavor to the game, and it's something that I I personally appreciate it. But you know, you're welcome to your own opinion, and uh, I, I can see why those type of items would be a little bit boring too if they don't provide extra value or something to the gameplay loop. Yep. All right. The next one comes to us from Shoot the Core Power Downs. <laughs> oh, geez. Yes, definitely Power Downs. The infamous question marking, or it's not question mark, exclamation mark in the Gradius series on there. The, oh no, when you get that. Uh-huh. In Proteus. I was it, thinking it, of like the Strikers series. You know, oh, jeez. Where you graze an enemy or what have you, and then you get a power down. Power down? Yeah. I prefer power downs to outright death. But yeah, they're still annoying. Uh, let's see. At at MX5DOB, being forced to use charge shots as normal firepower is too weak. 
Twinkle Star Sprites is a good example. Uh, and they also offer a second choice here, the ranking in rising games. Just let me power up my my ship without a difficulty increase. Um, so yeah, the charge shot thing I understand. If your regular shot is is actually a pea shooter in uh, in an almost literal sense, then yeah, having to rely too much on a charge shot can be a, a, a bit of a design imbalance. And so I would agree with that. The rank system in Rising games, I don't know. There are a lot of people who really enjoy playing with the rank in those games and manipulating that, and that's part of the fun. I haven't got into those too much, but I understand how it's frustrating because they're pretty they're pretty meticulous with how the rank increases and decreases, and they're pretty strict. Our next one comes for us from at Hooks and Fanes. The abomination in the power-up bar paired with a random roulette power-up. Yeah, this is really precedent within the more. So, I would say most often I see it's within the Parodia series. Maybe it's just because I play play those more so than I do with some of the Gradius series. But there, where it's like the auto power-up system, that's like we think you should go this way. Why don't you get two speeds? Then you automatically go get your missiles. And then after it's Oh, that drives me nuts knowing I just turn it off and power up how I want to. Did this frustrate you? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think Hooks and Fangs was specifically referencing uh, Parodius because the tweet included uh, a picture of the oh, an exclamation point that um, you know shows that that power up roulette thing, and yeah, that frustrates me too. It's one of the things that has kept me from diving too deep into the Parodia series, um, but I know it's one that we're definitely going to need to uh, to dive into at some point. Yeah, maybe we can do sexy Parodias for February of next year. <laughs> oh, for uh, uh, Valentine's Day. Indeed. <laughs> there you go. I'll have to think about that. All right, so at ZPS underscore STG says, Checkpoints, especially when they're really far apart and especially when the game respawns you with zero power. So yeah, dovetailing on what Sprite Mix said earlier. Yeah, again, I would tend to agree. I, uh, checkpoints work in games that are specifically designed for them where you have an opportunity to power back up again and... You know they're they're made fair in that sense, but uh, yeah, I I, I kind of tend to prefer when a game allows you the option to give you an instant respawn, give you the chance to gain back at least some of your power ups, and helps to kind of keep the flow of the game and the and the pace um, going. Yeah, it it does a pretty good job with, as mentioned before with keeping the momentum of the game going. I understand with some of the earlier stuff, as we talked about, how you need the chance to at least get the, you know, gratis, you get your, you get your pea shooter and you get your one speed power up. That's what you get. <laughs> it, yeah. But I, I understand how it just sort of kills the flow of a game when pushing back. I, I personally would prefer to have instant response for most, most games. All right, moving on to 05 Pro. 
games where the default speed is too slow and requires a power-up to get the speed <clears throat> to where, the, where it should have been at the default to begin with. Examples uh, such as Gradius, R-Type, Last Resort, and others. <clears throat> within the original R-Type, I'm trying to I don't remember, at least within the original R-Type, a uh, speed power-up that was needed for there. Am I misremembering? Yeah, you get speed ups within the game. The default ship slow or the default sh uh, ship speed on R type isn't quite as egregiously slow as Gradius, but I would say you got to have at least one speed power up to to really have a good chance at at dodging bullets and and weaving in and out of things uh, in R type. So it's not as bad as Gradius, but it's still an offender, I would say. You want to see a fence on games that on the total opposite, where the game goes too fast. <laughs> it looks like you're <laughs> a, a racquetball inside a blender, or a ping pong inside a blender. Rock on for the PC engine. The worst shmup on the system. You do more than like two or three oh, speed power-ups on that thing, and your ship is just flying through there. It's, oh, it's the only game, I think, where your ship can become so fast you can't keep up with it. Mm, well, yeah. Mention it to Sarah next time he's on stream and watch <laughs> his reaction. It's notoriously bad. And she, you know, is the only one that starts out with the dearly beloved. We'll have to go over that one this time. But it, oh, it's Kusoge yeah, at its finest. Yeah, we'll have to have a Kusoge episode at some point. Uh, so uh, at Kusoplayer underscore KZ. Uh, of course, who was on our uh, Ketsui episode, says getting powered down completely after dying. And yeah, I think that's a pretty solid answer. All right, the next one comes to us from at Game Over Club. One, aka Max Impact 24, lack of hope when you die and lose all your power-ups. Okay, so it's not really a mechanic. I, I would agree that lack of hope when you die, I think that is probably only pertains to Gradius 3 Arcade. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the only game that actually kills hope. Or Gradius 3 SA1. <laughs> oh, jeez, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. We're with you, Max Impact 24. Uh, so at Mark uh, Mark MSX from the Electric Underground podcast says power ups that change type and reset level like in Raiden that sucks, and I think I understand what you're saying, Mark. Like when you when you collect uh, let's say two of the two of the red power up and you power up your gun and then you collect the blue power up, it doesn't go up another level with your blue it just switches to the blue at whatever power level you're at. I think there are a couple of games that are more more egregious than that, uh, where if you change weapon types, it resets to the, the base level. Uh, I can't think of an example right off the top of my head, but I know I've played something like that. Now, I will say in Raiden 5, they attempted to fix that by allowing you to power up all three of your weapon types independently, <clears throat> so when you change weapon types, it, it's always going to power up that weapon type beyond whatever its previous level was. Um, but, you know, that that's one thing. But yeah, I, I would tend to agree that when you're 
getting a power-up and all it's doing is changing the weapon type you're using, but it's not adding to your arsenal anything more. Yeah, I, I can see that being a frustrating thing. Definitely. Next one comes to us from Void Audio. He refers to loops. And I, I definitely agree. I, I got super frustrated and annoyed at all the loops I had to do in the 19XX series. It's just... Oh, really got to me. No, in, <laughs> in all seriousness, in here, I definitely think that loops can or the special requirements for it, they're sort of neat, but I am uh, opinion that it sh maybe should give you a little bit more to the game. I would prefer maybe to see a, li a little bit more done with rank versus loops. But that's just my personal opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in a lot of the old school games, loops are more egregious <clears throat> because a lot of the older games that either are really long and then they loop or they're hardly long at all and they loop forever. Um, those are annoying to play for score because if you ever reach the point where if you reach the point where you're good enough to loop the game two or three times, unless the game ramps up in difficulty enough that each loop is a different experience, even with the same layouts and all that, you know, it, it, it can kind of become rote. I mean, I know there are people who play Gradius games several loops in, and hats off to those folks who are capable of playing at that level. But I, I kind of like I kind of like the idea of the way that loops are handled in a lot of cave games because those games aren't super long and you can get the base, you know, five or six stages or whatever and play those and have a good experience uh, and then then get to the loop and then that kind of takes you to sort of the next skill ceiling. So I appreciate what they're doing with that. Um, having said that, I, I understand the point because at some level it would be nice to just say, here's the set of stages and you have to get good enough to, to handle the game at such a level that you can reach the end and beat the boss. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I get it. I get to it. I think that rank might work as a better element in, in, in there than having a second loop uh, in there. So if, if your rank is at such a speed when you're reading there, you're going to get a different boss versus being on, on a second loop. I, I think that might be a better way going forward. But again, this is just my opinion. Sure. At Steven underscore Nicolik says, Super tight chaining requirements and any mechanic that makes you want to avoid gaining rank. Uh, I, I understand that at some level, but I think rank management is one of those things that, depending on how it's implemented, can be an interesting mechanic. Steel it's something vampire. that I'm... Yeah. Uh, it's something that I'm learning more about and something that... I think will be interesting to continue to explore and learn as we as we play more games in the genre and kind of broaden our our knowledge and experience with this this stuff. So I'm not going to disagree, but 
I do think there's something intriguing about rank management in shmups that I've seen so far, and I think there are interesting and fun ways to implement it, and then there are ways to implement it that are overly punitive or maybe esoteric and hard to figure out that might not be as fun. So I think it's probably more situational. I think that we're dealing with chaining requirements or rank. I, I find it fascinating. And at first it was very frustrating, but the more I play stuff, and especially uh, still as we record this, we're deep into April, thanks to uh, all the changes in the world and dealing with how th- how life works now with COVID and that we're steel vampire really strikes a good pose between that and allowing you to either quickly power up but you're gonna get more weapons or power down game's gonna be easier but you're not gonna get as much score and you're not gonna get as good of weapons either really a good risk reward with that and it's something that I'm definitely going to be looking into more as we play throughout this month and get in into in our discussion next month. Yep. Alright, our next comment comes to us from Steven Eidner. Bullet Hells in general. And I, I can understand, Bullet Hells in general are all, or Damako, are all about routing and controlling the space. They're... It, uh, I mean, you can say R-Type and all those the classic shmups is t- too. It's all about controlling the screen. But really, uh, you, at, when you get to that point, it's sort of like any game's about controlling the screen and your space on there, right? <laughs> but, but Don Muckle, I think the best way I've heard it is you've got a one of those... Everyone's seen these before, maze games, where you've got a ball that you've got to get through a maze. But imagine the maze is constantly shifting on you. It's really hard for some people to wrap their head around, and it's something that has taken me a long way time for me to train my brain to operate that way. Especially someone who's coming from playing games like R-Type, Gradius, Parodius, all of the classic shmups. It's it's definitely its own element. Then he put an addition in here. They're too much work. It's like how fighting games have become too dependent on combos. <laughs> the the routing and everything and making sure that you hit everything right on there it, without save states and without l- really putting in a lot of time I can see how it's frustrating it seems more like work than just having fun yeah all I'll say is a decade ago I would have agreed with you Stephen I didn't quite understand the appeal and I felt like a lot of those games were impenetrable. Now that I've actually played some and have learned more about how they work, uh, I find them a lot more appealing and, and intriguing and something that, if the game is well designed enough, it makes me want to play it more and get better at it. I would say, for anyone who may be struggling with the idea of Maku games, bullet hell shmups, go watch the How to Shmup video series that Mark uh, the Electric Underground is doing on YouTube. He has got some good kind of initial tutorials about how to how to approach these games. And of course, he's talking shmups in general, but since his focus is on 
cave and cave style games, generally speaking, Danmaku games. They're, they're concepts that are going to apply, and I, I think they're worth watching regardless, because it's going to give you an indication uh, as to whether or not those types of, of games are going to be for you. If you haven't figured that out already, or if you're still wondering, is this something that I even want to devote the time to? Watching a couple of those tutorial videos and sort of seeing what, you know, what, what the learning process is, I think will really help people to identify whether or not it's going to be a, a genre or a subset of the genre that they want to take a deep dive into. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. I knew that Toho would sneak in here somewhere. Huh. In all seriousness, Toho might be a good place for looking there. It's going to have a low barrier of entry and allow you to get at least a good idea of how these games play. And there should be, a, again, Mark, Mark will echo the same sentiments here. The other one, if you know anybody who, and I wish this was available on Steam, but if you know anybody who has Fatari, it's region-free on the 360, and it is a really great way to get into Damaku games. Hmm, yes. Yeah, Mushi Futari is great. Um, so, at Hauser, or House XR, says, Ranking Management. Aiding slash rising games are unplayable if you're not a 200 IQ shmup god. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't say they're unplayable, but yeah, I mean, playing something, something like Batrider or Battle Garega, if you don't understand the ranking and you're just collecting power-ups and things willy-nilly, the game can have a way of, of demoralizing you in, in a way. So you kind of do have to go in with a little bit of knowledge of how it plays or you're going to quickly find out that the games aren't very forgiving. Having said that, I, I think there's merit to, to the ranking rank management in those games. And, uh, I know that's something that I look forward to exploring when we, when we get to, to one of those titles. All right. Our next one comes to us from at David Bruno. Love all the responses so far. For me, it has to be losing power-ups that can fly off the screen after taking a hit or a death. I much prefer if they bounce off the screen for a while before disappearing. That and the screen shake. Looking at you, Cinemora. Oh my gosh, I have to agree <laughs> with Cinemora. That screen shake. Oh, jeez. It's, it's, I, don't, I don't need to have, so have a, a visual thing on it. It just distracts from the gameplay. And... and Hopefully we get to that game sometime next year because it's definitely plentiful enough. But yes, that that definitely distracts me and annoys me in that game. Yeah. Uh, let's see. At Steel Ball Runner says, Any shooting game where the bomber attack doesn't happen right away when you press the button and doesn't give you invulnerability until it explodes. It all started with Twin Cobra. Uh, I don't know if Twin Cobra was the the first i'm pretty sure there was a little bit of that with uh with its predecessor uh tiger heli and i want to say there may have been a couple of earlier shmups that did that but i understand that you know there there are enough shooters out there that 
have sort of developed the idea that the instant you hit the bomb button, you have a few iframes, and most of those games, those bombs are going to either provide a shield against enemy fire or eliminate enemy fire in the game. Even if it's not all enemy fire, it's going to help clear the field so that you've got a little bit of relief. So I, I get that. I, I don't know if I can agree across the board, but I, I do see a merit in in that frustration. Our next one comes to us from at Beamlord. Polarity switching like an Ikaruga because I'm really suck at that stuff. And I have to admit, as much as I play Ikaruga and I like it, I am terrible at that right now. So I'm hoping that we either get to that or uh, Radiant Silver Gun sometime within the near future so I can practice at getting better at it. Yeah, the polarity switching is something that I, I find intriguing and interesting. Um, I bought Ikaruga way back when it came out on GameCube, um, but I never got very good at it. So yeah, that's definitely one that we need to queue up and explore. I understand why it's frustrating, and I know there are people... Ikaruga is one of those, well, polarizing games, pardon the pun, uh, where some people think that the polarity mechanic is really cool and is one of the interesting things about it, and other people... Uh, just think that that's overrated and that, you know, there, it's too much of a... turns turns Ikaruga into too much of a, you know, Pac-Man shmup where it becomes eating bullets. Uh, at Darius Shmupper says, Not a shmup-exclusive problem, but I think timers should be removed from character select screens in arcade ports. I could not agree more. I, I think... I don't see anything wrong with straight ports coming across with uh, those things still intact for people that want the pure arcade experience, but I think any developer who ports over a shmup, like an older arcade shmup, or brings forward a classic console shmup, for example, should have the ability or some way that you can set in the options to turn that off, because I, that gets old for me too. Uh, our next one comes from Spadigy underscore OTA. Snipe shots coming from behind you fired by enemies that have already passed you and gone off screen. Maybe not a true mechanic, but a shmuppy thing that only causes me sadness. When I was trying to 1cc Fighting Hawk, I killed the boss, only to lose my last life. After that, to a stray, but still alive, bullet from the boss hit me while I celebrated, so I couldn't beat the game. So, excuse me, so I beat the game, but didn't. Got a proper 1cc of it soon after, thankfully. Well, congratulations on your 1cc. And I completely understand that frustration. There, it, a game that really strikes me on this, even though they weren't completely off screen, but they were there, was 1942. That game has snipe shots like crazy busy. The game is programmed to shoot where they believe you're going to move to, and it re it's a really good job of boxing you in and and shooting too. The, there are a couple of instances in Gradius where that same thing happens on there. Would you have a couple examples from? Um, most of what I can think of is games, games where either on later levels or higher difficulties, where you know, like console ports of old shmups and things like that, where 
depending on the TV you're playing on, if the enemy comes on screen but you don't see it because of overscan, then they may be shooting a bullet out a split second before you can actually see them. But other than those instances, there aren't, I, don't, I can't think of any particular examples, but I know that I've dealt with that. And I would, I would tend to agree. I think bullets coming from off screen or shots being fired as an enemy's leaving the screen, that's just cheap. And I don't like that mechanic at all. We've got, speaking of that stuff, we'll add in a comment here from at S. Barney Willis. The shrapnel post-death bullet from a vanquished enemy can exit stage right. It's the only way I can make it uh, family-friendly here. But I completely agree that the death animation, or that last gasp of enemies on there, can get really, really annoying and frustrating. It was cool to see a non-shmup game where I appreciate it would have been uh, Rondo Blood. That was neat to see. But within that, that they at least, so if you got hit from that final attack, it didn't kill you. It would just take off most of your life bar. So it was tolerable and didn't make you lose the game. Well, here he's talking about something that would make you lose a life or end, end your run. Yeah, I, I know there are some people who appreciate revenge bullets or suicide bullets. I think it's probably, again, on a game-by-game -game basis. There are times when they're, they're just really, really far too targeted or far too fast and furious. So, yeah, it probably depends. Uh, our final entry here from at MX7X says end of level slash game bonuses for lives, bombs, gems, whatever. Lazy, antiquated, and can invalidate other scoring mechanics. And wow, that once again, that is a hot take. Uh, I, I actually kind of enjoy that because a lot of times those are the kinds of things in like the Raiden series or, you know, a lot of classic shmups or in a lot of newer games where you're collecting bonus items throughout the course of the stage and you're getting points for them along the way. And then if you manage to no miss a level, then a lot of times you're getting an additional bonus on top of that for staying alive throughout the course of that level and getting to the end with all of those medals or bonus items intact. So I, <clears throat> I just think that's a, an interesting way to make a game more deep in terms of the scoring. So I, yeah, I, I, I'm not necessarily on board with that. I get why some people would think it's, it's lazy or, or antiquated, but I don't know. I enjoy it. Yeah, I would say that it depends upon how it's implemented, but for the majority of the games, I do enjoy it. Alright, and well, speaking of enjoyment on here, let's close off of the comment section. Thank you for all those who have <clears throat> typed in or written in. Let's ta start talking about our March game of the month, which is Gyarus. Now, Gyarus is, or should say, was developed and published in Japan by 1990 by Telenet, and published by Telenet's Western arm known as Renovation in 1990 for North America. Now, 
I, it's one of those ones that's a little bit hard to pronounce, but best way to think about this, and we're going to use your favorite word in here, Fro, is it's a portmanteau of Gaia and Resurrection. Yes. So, Earth Resurrection. <clears throat> think about it. Now, the company started out, company Telenet, Japan, started out in 1983 as Nippon Telenet, or Telenet Japan. It was founded by Kawazuki Fukushima. The company began developing games for the MSX, Sharp X1, NEC PC88, and other computing platforms, eventually moving over to the 16-bit consoles and ending up on the PlayStation 2 and GameCube. Throughout their time in the industry, they developed a strong publishing arm with a number of shooting games for the Mega Drive such as Whiprush, Aeroflash, Soul and Soul Fees. Gyrus was the only one that they developed internally. And Whip Rush, Aeroflash, and Soul Fees are all games that I definitely want to cover eventually. Oh, for sure. They're all seminal Genesis titles. Gyrus is famous in North America because of its mullet marketing campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Which consisted of three magazine advertisements, which featured professional gamer Jamie Bunker praising the game. Bunker, who sported a mullet at the time of the advertisements, quickly became a meme on the internet over the last decade or so. He's the guy who always had the shirt say, can you say Guy R Us? Yes. So Guy R Us is also notable for being one of the earliest 8 megabit cartridges and potentially the earliest release by a third-party publisher. <clears throat> Gaia is, is one of those ones that in 1998 was striking. Is the Genesis had really d- built itself upon bringing the arcade home. <clears throat> and I think that this would be one of the first titles that would actually deliver upon that promise. It really feels like you, with its large bosses, <clears throat> its very varied use great use of parallax scrolling on there you've got a sound system that doesn't sound like it came out of a tin can i mean everything about this screams arcade brought home and in 1990 because genesis came out in 1989 in the u.s so come out a year after really shows on how good a grasp they had on this and it, I think it also showed within the way that it was reviewed in the West. Do you have any thoughts, bro? Yeah, I mean, I had some discussion with someone here a couple, three weeks ago about this, and they were wondering, was this the first 8 megabit cartridge on the Genesis? And it wasn't, because that was actually Strider that uh, Sega developed in-house as a conversion of of the Capcom arcade game. But it certainly was among the earliest 8 megabit cartridges. And you can definitely tell, uh, and we'll get into this more as we talk about the game, but you can definitely tell that there was a lot of, there's just a lot of of polish to the game in, in a number of ways. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it definitely feels like a, a premium uh 16-bit title for its time. Also, I mean, 8-megabit, you're looking at Strider on there, you're going to get maybe 30 minutes of playtime at most. This game will definitely give you a lot more than 30 minutes of playtime. 
Oh yeah, I mean even just a just a straight playthrough of the game uh, is fairly lengthy. All right, and speaking of fairly lengthy, let's get into the plot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is not as bad as Tex Mexium, but it's still pretty interesting. In the year three thousand, in the year three thousand, Earth has become a toxic dump ravaged by careless humans, leaving an uninhabitable, polluted wasteland. Well, keep in mind this is before Wally, so <clears throat> the space pirates Golfer, led by the evil queen Zizi Badnusty, love that title, plan to harvest the pollution of the Earth to create weapons of mass destruction. Oh, that's where they were. The United Star Cluster of Leedsworth sent a warning to the Earth about their plans, stating if they could not stop them, they would be forced to supernova the Earth's sun and <clears throat> to stop them themselves. But if they succeeded, Leedsworth would use their technology to restore the Earth to its former beauty. Well, well you know, when when you put it that way, well, you can, if you don't stop total desolation, everybody dies. Or, you know, you kill these people and all of a sudden we uh, make the earth green and blue again. Uh, you know, it makes the choice uh, fairly black and white. <laughs> uh, you know, is, this is the main character's name, Dan. Da, I believe it's pronounced Dare here, but you also say Dan Dare. Known in Diaz as in the Japanese original, young pilot from Earth was chosen to be the pilot of a new fighter ship to combat the Golfer. The ship is armed with a powerful experimental weapon from Lizueth called the TOZ or TOS system, which be operated by Alexis, an emissary from Lizueth. This, I think that this, there's only one other game that I can think of that, aside from like Captain Planet or something, that really has a ecological backstory on it, and that would be Eco Fighters. That came out for the CPS two in the arcade. Yeah, uh, can can we just take a minute and revel in the awesomeness and amazingness that is the name Queen ZZ Badnessy? <laughs> oh, I just love it, and i i got I got to bring this up because because it's 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 related to the name, but you know Queen ZZ Badnessy. Well, what else is ZZ? Well, ZZ Top, right? Now, I'll just say it. I actually went to see ZZ Top, my brother and I, back in, what was it, 99? And um, it was, they were doing a head, a, a co-headlining tour with, with Leonard Skinner. And, you know, when you go to a concert, there's always the one guy in the back of the the back of the hall or the back of the venue, no matter who's playing, that always has his beer up in the air and, and yells, Freebird! You know, <laughs> well, of course, when when the band that plays Freebird is doing their concert, no one needs to do that. So, Leonard Skinner went on first. So then, of course, you had the opposite. There was this guy who was standing behind my brother and I and the friends that we brought, and he must have been like seven foot twelve. I mean, this guy was a an absolute tower, and he was already drunk by the time he got to the show. And he was holding his beer up in the air, 
And the whole night, the whole time during Leonard Skinner's set, because they played first, he was yelling, ZZ! And, you know, sloshing his beer around and basically spilling it all over people. He spilled it on our friends. And uh, so when, every time I hear this, Queen ZZ Bad Nasty, I always think of the seven foot something guy standing behind us at that concert 20 years ago yelling, ZZ! All the way through Leonard Skinner's set. <laughs> oh, well if they uh, with the uh, mega sd on there you can finally add that in yourself make your own audio track for the game <laughs> oh man uh, uh. all right well with the uh, very entertaining story out of the way you know in I, it's. I would definitely rank the story up there with the uh, <laughs> Tex Mexium and the uh, <clears throat> from the, from the moon story of Ein Honda. Oh yeah. Well, it's definitely. Uh, it definitely ranks above the coffee and crystals of Raiden Five. It uh, that that sets the bar low. I mean, that that that's <laughs> like the. <laughs> that, that's like a limbo bar for storyline. Is what Raiden Five is. <laughs> How low can you go? Oh, <laughs> uh, we will find out. I'm sure. There, uh, and for anyone wondering, Deep Space Wife, who is probably the lowest you can go, but we're not going to cover it here. <laughs> uh. All right. Well, let's get on to something that is actually really exciting to talk about, and that is the gameplay. The yeah. prim- primary mechanic of Gaia is is the toss system. Think of it, the best way to think of this is the Force Pod from R-Type, right? Kind of, yeah. And there, it's a pod that follows your spaceship around like an option and can be launched to enemies and objects. When the TAS launches onto an object, it will leech power from that object and allow your ship to take on the characteristic related to it. For example, when you fire the TAS at an enemy, you can either enhance your ship's built-in weapon or steal a weapon upgrade from the enemy. I feel like in some ways we're talking a little bit about the increasing levels that people were having some frustration with earlier. Yeah, a little bit, but this is... The the TOZ system allows you pretty direct control over that, where once you kind of get a feel for what enemies will give you what weapon types, then you can really, you can really tailor that to how you want to do it. Um, so... Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. Um, I, I yeah, I definitely agree on there. Although <clears throat> I did see that for the most part, people seem to be sticking with the same option, which is the giant laser, for the majority of what they're playthrough. Right. The other th- interesting thing that should be mentioned with the toss system is when you're firing it, you re- really are vulnerable. So it ni- gives a nice risk reward because you can't fire your shots as you're shooting it out trying to capture something. Right. Alright, so most weapons have more than one power level, as we previously discussed, so it's best to try and steal the same power type of power-up more than once to make sure you have the most powerful version of a weapon. (laughs) Usually there are three levels, aren't there, for most stuff? For most weapons, there are three levels, yep. Small, medium, and large, yep. Alright, so (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about some of the weapons. There is the Vulcan. A.K.A. the iconic Vulcan, 
as the opposed to the anonymous Vulcan and other stuff, I'm sure. Your, your <laughs> ship's default weapon, which fires a standard forward shot, can be upgraded twice to level 3 world file. Excuse me, where I'll fire three shots in a stack formation. I mean, it was pretty nice. It was the I Vulcan to me was a lot better than your standard pea shooter. You get a lot of games looking at you, Konami games and Gradius slash Parodius, but it, it didn't give you that sort of control that I think you'll get with some of the later Don Maku games. But of course, this is way too early for that stuff. We didn't even get to. Something's like Batsugun until 1993, so it may it definitely makes sense. I I thought it struck a good balance. What did you think of the iconic Vulcan? Yeah, I mean, I think as as default weapons go, it's not bad. I would say the nice thing is there are a number of enemies in the game that will offer you upgrades for this weapon, as opposed to giving you a different one. So if you die and you start the the stage off with nothing um generally speaking the first enemy that you encounter or one of the first enemies that you encounter at the beginning of a stage or at most of the checkpoints are gonna give you the chance to at least power this up to level two or three uh which gives you enough firepower to fairly easily take out most popcorn enemies and at least have a fighting chance against you know, some of the stronger enemies or give you the ability to at least get through the first wave so then you can start fishing for a better weapon. Yeah, I, again, I think it's a good default weapon that doesn't feel underpowered anyway and is definitely plays to the game's strengths. So, let's move it on. We have the P-Cannon, also known as the Plasma Cannon. Much better than uh, some of the other stuff it could have fired, I'm sure. It shoots a two-way spread of energy <laughs> balls from the ship. At level three, it shoots balls behind your ship. This one I saw being used primarily in stages, for like into the part of stage one, into some some people used it in stage two. It definitely has its uses for shooting behind your ship. And if you have it for when you're fighting the, I believe it's stage three if I remember correctly, the Grim Reaper boss, it definitely helps there. Yeah, this is one that when I first started playing the game a couple decades ago when I bought it, uh, I remember kind of gravitating toward this weapon because of the wide shot and because it was a little bit stronger, not by a lot, but a little bit stronger than the uh, than the standard iVulcan. So I, I did kind of gravitate toward this early on, and I used it a little bit during... Um, my playthroughs for the month, but I, it's not a weapon that I think is useful long term because even at level three, you get a two way forward shot, uh, which is sort of like 30 degrees up and then 30 degrees down or approximately. And then, uh, and then behind you, but you still have no forward shot. So it's you still feel just a little bit vulnerable in some situations. Um, so I, I feel like it works to help clear the field of popcorn, but at the end of the day, I don't think it's a, a long-term weapon that is going to be easy to beat the game with. Yeah, that's safe for our next weapon, which is the G-Beam, also known as the Giga Beam. 
It's a large laser that covers a wide area. Level 2 widens the beam, and level 3 allows the Taz to shoot a beam as well. Laser's hitbox might be a little smaller than the sprite itself, but the G-beam can pass through scenery and objects as well as large enemies to damage enemies behind. And this really is the bread and butter weapon of the game, at least to me. Is it really does a great job of positioning you. There's a one of the bosses later on, I, maybe it's the M, I think it's the M boss, of where you position yourself just a little bit higher and let the Taz, or in this case an option, <clears throat> take out the weak spot while the enemy's firing at where the Taz is and they're not firing at you. Did you you have the same use for this weapon? Yeah, th this is one of those where I think a lot of people considered this to be the the strongest or best uh, standard weapon in the game, and I I definitely spent a lot of time during the month playing and utilizing the Giga Beam. I, I think it's a really a really versatile weapon in a lot of ways, and it's it's strong enough. I think that it's probably good for most most situations now moving on from something that's good for most situations to something that's good for certain situations is the s laser or the somersault laser these are homing lasers that fire from the front of your ship upward and downward upgrades make them deploy slightly faster however it's a relatively weak weapon you first see this weapon at the beginning of stage two with the sort of targeted uh, satellite I need to go through there it was neat to use so cool but it just doesn't have the punch that the giga laser has yeah Th this is one that when I discovered that the satellites would give you the the homing laser I thought oh homing laser I gotta have that but I found at least years ago when I first got the game I found that a it was difficult to acquire the weapon safely and not get hit by the incoming lasers that the satellites were reflecting from the cannons below uh, but then also B yeah it's kind of a weak weapon even at level 3 where it shoots faster it's still you know you're still taking popcorn out quickly but larger enemies are going to take more hits and you're going to be more vulnerable because they're going to be on screen longer and have more chance to either fire at you or run into you so I don't think it's a super useful weapon other than in certain situations um, and is not probably one of the better overall choices in the game. It's neat to experiment, but it's, yeah, again, it's not something that you want to use long term. Uh, next weapon is the T-Missile, also known as the Tektite Missile, which brings back memories of Legend of Zelda there. It has rapid-fire missiles from the front and back of your ship. Level 2 makes it a 4-way fire, adding top and bottom missiles, and level 3 adds two additional missiles firing at 45 degrees, upwards and downwards from the front of your ship. I don't think I use this more than once or twice. It, it just, didn't, again, didn't have the punch. Did you use this at all? Uh, yeah, actually, I used this one uh, a fair bit, at least when I was able to successfully acquire it and, and hold on to it. The, the missiles are pretty powerful, and because they shoot quickly, they're, they're really good at taking out targets pretty fast, um, especially if you can get it 
leveled up to level two or even three, then some of the larger mid-size enemies and things you can take out pretty quickly with these. So I feel like if this is a weapon that you can get a hold of and keep hold of and not die, then yeah, it's definitely a worthwhile choice. Um, I don't think it's quite as versatile as the G-Beam, but because of its range, uh, especially at level 2 or 3, um, it's worth exploring as an alternative. Mm -hmm. Sounds like I need to go back and revisit it. Alright, moving on. The H-Laser, also known as the Horizontal Laser. It's similar to the G-Beam, but just a smaller, thinner version. Does not pass through scenery like the G-Beam. And starts as a very thin laser, and it widens the level 2 and level 3 upgrades. I mean, this this was sort of neat to see in practicality on there. you just better, again, better off sticking with the G-Beam. Yeah, I mean, the, the level 3 is kind of cool, because it's a sort of a corkscrew laser. Um, looks a little bit like, uh, oh, what was it, the C-Laser or whatever from Gradius. But... <laughs> It's slightly stronger than the Giga Beam, so if you're looking for strictly power, then this might be the way to go, because I think it might be the the strongest single, uh, single fire weapon in the standard arsenal. But the Giga Beam has so much going for it, with the wider the wider beam, the ability to pass through scenery, etc., that even though it's not as strong, it makes up for that with its other attributes. So I feel like the the horizontal laser is almost like a I don't know, like a second tier weapon. Yeah, the I would say that the H laser would be similar to if you're taking a sniper shot or something, you're gonna have a very focused point of it impact on there but if you give me a chance between taking something out with a sniper shot or something with a cannon i'm going to use the cannon i'm going to make sure right. i take as much as possible and i think that's sort of the comparison to make here all right so the next one is the v laser or vertical laser and you know someone really likes lasers here it creates a laser wave that shoots out from your ship that can deflect some enemy fire at level three, the wave widens, and the Taz will also shoot waves. This was just something that I didn't really use too much. Again, I was so much on the Giga Laser. Yeah, and see, this is one of those that I think is both a blessing and a curse. Um, the first chance that you have to get this weapon is in stage two, the mid-boss is this sort of flying dragon boss. You can get this weapon by launching the TOZ at that boss. If, despite that dragon's somewhat erratic movement around the screen, you can manage to leech it and, and launch the TOZ at it three times and get it fully powered up, this is a good weapon. It's very strong, and if you can get that level three, so you get the wider beam and get the TOZ shooting these things, then you can cut down just about anything pretty quickly. Um, the caveat with that is the stage two boss, the first form of the stage two boss, when you've got the, the shell, you practically have to be right up in its face or position the TOZ in such a way that when the shell's moving around, that the TOZ can be sort of 
like inside of the very front piece so it actually does damage. Otherwise, it's going to take a really long time to get through the first phase of that stage two boss. I don't think there's more than a couple of enemy types in the game that actually offer this. There's one that comes much later in stage uh, five, I think, that offers uh, this. There's one enemy type that offers it. And so if you're if you're hurting for a good weapon or you need something better in stage five, then you can pick it up there. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a really good weapon, but it's hard to pick up and it does it does have that stage two boss caveat, which makes it a little bit harder to wield. All right, our next weapon is the Arg Coladere, also the Rolling Coladere. It begins as a two-way short laser burst, and for each subsequent shot, the direction of the fire changes in a rolling fashion. At level three, this is upgraded to a four-way shot, and the Taz will begin firing the same four-way pattern. Did you use this much at all? Uh, I got it once or twice, um, once by accident and once as I was just trying to leech everything to see what I would get. Um, this is a weapon that I pretty much think is a novelty item and is not very much fun to use because you don't really have any control over where and when the weapon is going to fire, um, so it's not very practical. Fair enough. Next we have the E-Smash, also known as the Energy Smash. You hold down the B button and a series of orbs start circling your ship, which can act as a shield and deflect some enemy fire, as well as take out enemies that get too close. Once fully charged, release the B button, and it will fire orbs out in a rolling circle pattern. At level 3, the Taz will get this ability as well. This was, I don't think I ever got this one through any of my playthroughs. It, you find this about the same as the Arcaladary? Um, it's definitely more useful than than that. I I didn't really go for this one much because um I find this one a little bit harder to wield. This is sort of like think of the the number three weapon type in Xanak or what is it the uh, the uh the number four weapon in blazing lasers once you pair it with that the f icon and it gives you the ability to shoot out the sort of ring deals uh but this one is it's interesting because it kind of gives you the best of both worlds you can hold the 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 fire button down and create that rolling uh, batch of orbs around your ship and then you can release it once it's fully charged and then get a get a barrage that shoots out and takes out stuff in its path. I I got this a couple of times early on, didn't quite know how to use it, uh, and then as I was kind of experimenting with the, the game uh, the other day, just to kind of refresh on a little bit, I purposely went and tried to get this. And I'll say that it's a difficult weapon to obtain successfully and get to level 3 with, because you're very vulnerable while you are getting this weapon from that first batch of enemies in stage uh, two, I think it is, where you can pick this up the first time. Now, the guide that I was looking at on Giant Bomb, 
that had this whole weapon write-up where I kind of gleaned a lot of this information, they actually say there's a couple spots in the game where you practically need this weapon because, you know, there's almost no room to move around. And I think if you're if you're playing through with just the standard weapon set, I'm not going to say that they're entirely wrong. Those situations are doable, but this certainly makes it easier. But this is one of those weapons that I think you would really have to go in, master picking this one up in stage two, and then just find a way to... You would have probably have to route the game even more specifically in order to make sure that you can hold on to it and be assured that you're going to have it for when you need it later in the game. All right. Let's move on to some of the hidden weapons in the game. We have the F troop, I'm sorry, F formation. <laughs> this weapon can be obtained when using the Taz on an enemy where the score is a multiple of 10,000, meaning the last four digits are zeros. When activated, the Taz splits into five segments and shoots out orange needles at high speed. Now, this is something you did by accident on your first, or was it second stream? Uh, yeah, it was the first or second stream, and then I got it one other time. I think when I was specifically trying to do it, I managed to I managed to get it at least one other time on stream. And I know uh, one of the participants, Faux Macho, was, was watching along and was mentioning that and he he dropped that into the chat and we were talking about it and then I managed to get it and I think there may be a uh, a little bit of a, a tolerance or a margin for error on that because when when I grabbed the weapon uh, I think he commented to say that my score was something like a it was like forty thousand five points or something like that so I don't know if it was that I picked up a couple extra points right after I picked up the weapon or picking up the weapon rewarded me the five points. I don't know, but it seemed like maybe there was just a little bit of a margin for error there. Uh, but either way, it's a, it's an interesting weapon and yeah, the TOZ does this weird thing where it sort of blinks and you've got almost like ghost versions of the TOZ that, that sort of spin around and you know shoot out these they look like needles i mean think of like needle uh needle man from mega man 3 but larger versions of that that shoot out at high speed and it's a pretty effective weapon but it's a little bit impractical to to try and obtain you know on a regular basis i was not able to duplicate that again and i tried multiple times to try to get this weapon again and i just couldn't pull it off yeah it, it seems very cool but very hard to pull off in a run right, next weapon is our next hidden weapon is the t vulcan to acquire this weapon you need to shoot the toz a total of 128 times they don't need to be consecutive on the 129th toz launch if you attach an enemy your ship will get a seven-way spread shot well I am not counting in shmups when I do with that, so I probably will <laughs> never ever get this. All right, 128. All right, now shoot. No. Yeah. I I sat down uh, a few days ago and actually tried to do this, and I what I my plan was was to 
count the number of TOZ launches that I did up to the mid-boss in stage one, and then just sit there and dodge his attacks and just TOZ launch time and time and time again to count up to that 128 so then I could launch at the enemy that 129th time and try to get the seven-way shot because I thought, well, seven-way spread shot, I mean, that's going to be pretty powerful and really allow you to, to take out stuff. So maybe that'll give me an edge and give me the ability to get through a good, you know, significant portion of the game with, uh, with that weapon. But I tried it several times and got really frustrated with it, was never able to achieve it, so I just gave up. <laughs> Sounds about exactly the way it would go for me as well. <laughs> Next, we have the A-Bullet. This can only be locked once per game and only at the beginning of the game. At the start of level 1, quickly pause and unpause the game 8 times. Then deploy the TOZ at a non-enemy object. A smart bomb on level 1. <laughs> the T-missile fires larger missiles that do a lot of damage. <laughs> this was one that I wasn't aware of or hadn't tried. Have you tried to get this weapon? Yeah, I did manage to grab this once. Uh, well, a couple of times, I think, on stream. I grabbed it once and then died almost immediately. Uh, and then I went back and I did it again and managed to hold on to it for a little while. It's pretty powerful. I mean, the, the missiles fire out quickly. Uh, they're more powerful even than the, than the T missile. And, um, the, the downside of course, being that they only fire forward, but it's a really strong weapon, but it would be, it might be a fun challenge to see how far you could get in the game with that if you could do a no death run using the a bullet that might be interesting i would definitely watch that replay all right so our last hidden weapon is a t-braster which i'm sure you know anyone knows about japanese and the l and the r probably means t-blaster probably this weapon can only be obtained when your ship has the default i-vulcan or normal weapon equipped to acquire it, fire the TAS six times at the right side of the screen. Then on the seventh launch, make sure to capture an enemy. If successful, your TOZ will be equipped with a five-way shot that sends homing energy orbs out at enemies. <clears throat> your ship retains the default level one Vulcan. In addition, you lose a weapon after completing the stage run. So if you want to attain this weapon again, you'll need to repeat the steps. So again, this is not one that I was aware of, but it... It sounds pretty cool that they that they threw in so much of these hidden weapons and s s adds a little something to the game. These days, you, you probably end up as DLC weapon. They're hidden. We hid them from the game. Huh. Five ninety nine each. Yeah, the T Braster became my favorite weapon and my go to, basically from the moment that I was able to successfully uh, obtain it easily in that first stage. Other than a little bit of additional experimenting that I did, this was my go-to. It works a lot like the Hunter from the Thunder Force series, but the one thing with the Hunter that you find is that while it's a good weapon, it's a little weaker than some of the other weapons. So what you make up for in its hunting ability, you give up a little bit of power. With this weapon, you don't have that. So these homing orbs are really powerful. They cut through popcorn enemies and most mid-size enemies in 
just no time at all. I mean, it rips everything like butter. So what, um, what I found, though, is there are a couple of the later stages where it's either difficult to obtain this at a checkpoint or even at the beginning of the stage, it can be difficult to do this. So specifically stages four, well, actually, even in stage three, it can be a little bit difficult to obtain this at the beginning. You really have to dart down to kind of the bottom right corner of the screen and do quick, uh, or no, not stage three, stage four, do quick six launches and then quickly bounce back to the back of the screen so you can grab one of the enemies and get the T-Braster and hope that you don't that you don't get a stray bullet in, in the meantime. And then again, stage five, it gets uh, increasingly hard to do that because there are enemies almost immediately and you don't have time to uh, to use the, the TOZ to get those launches in before that first batch of enemies comes. So you basically have to take them out with the default level of the iVulcan, then take the time to do your six launches so that when the next wave comes, you can grab it and hope that you don't get cut down by the swarm of bullets that comes and uh, and do that. Now, I, I managed to, by the end of the month, come up with a strategy for each stage and basically each checkpoint so that I could get this weapon and essentially utilize it through the whole game. But this is this weapon is a lot of fun to play with and uh, definitely one that I'm not going to say it, it makes the game easy mode, but it certainly will give you an edge. All right. Great stuff to consider. Now, we have a couple things that aren't really weapons. They're more upgrades. So let's have a quick overview of them. Some stages will contain a smart bomb that can be used to destroy all small enemies clear all enemy fire and damage larger enemies. This can either be collected by flying the ship into it or by collecting it with the TOZ. Some levels will have a shield power-up known as the Brake Defender. If you fly your ship into it, you receive a blue shield that will give you three hits before it's vulnerable again. On the last shield hit, it turns orange to signal it's nearly out of energy. Call back to Gradius, maybe? Uh, or uh, Thunder Force. Oh, yeah. If you launch the TOZ at the power-up first and then collect it with your ship, you will receive a total of five shield hits. When powering up your ship with the TOZ, you receive the Quark missile. By targeting the ground-based enemies with it, you can upgrade to double missile that shoots both upwards and downwards, as well as some ground enemies will allow you to have this upgraded honing missiles as well. Yeah, one, one thing to note about the the smart bomb there are a couple of instances uh in stage three and then again in stage uh five where the smart bomb will be on the screen at the same time as your shield power up make sure you collect the shield power up before you collect the smart bomb because if you if you set off the smart bomb while the shield power up is still on the screen it will be destroyed and you will not have the opportunity to grab it um, I learned that lesson the hard way a couple times and um, thought that was kind of a cheap a cheap deal within the game, but something to note if you're going to tackle this game. 
good advice for us all. <clears throat> Would you like to uh, give an overview as well as head on to our next section? Yeah. Uh, so the game plays out over eight stages, the first six of which are unique, with stage seven serving as a boss rush. And then assuming you beat the stage seven end boss, you'll move on to an eighth stage, which is basically just a short segment with some asteroids to destroy. Uh, and then your final boss encounter with Queen ZZ, Bad Nusty, ZZ, in a giant mech suit. There are a number of cheats and secrets in the game, in addition to the stuff that we've already mentioned with the hidden weapons. Uh, to access the game's configuration mode, uh, you hold A, B, or C at the title screen and press start. And there you can access the sound test, change the difficulty, or change the language between Japanese and English. Um, once you're in that config screen, you can activate cheat mode. To do that, you set the background music test to 18, and then hold the A button on controller 2, and exit the config mode menu. Now, once you have cheat mode activated, uh, when you press start on the tile screen, you will be taken to a level select. <coughs> Excuse me, instead of just starting the game. Also, with cheat mode active while you're in gameplay, if you pause the game and then hold down both A and C and press left on the D-pad, you will engage invincibility, which will stay in effect uh, until the end of the current stage. Uh, once again, pause the game, hold up on the D-pad, and press A. This will change the weapon that you have selected, and you can continue to press A to cycle through the different weapons. Uh, once the, the name appears uh, for the weapon that you want, you unpause the game and fire the TOZ into empty space to activate that weapon. And uh, also, if you pause the game, hold up on the D-pad and press C, you can level up your current weapon to level 2, Press C a second time to raise it to level 3. Again, on pause and fire the TOZ into empty space to confirm the change. Uh, and then there was something else that mentioned on a couple of websites that uh, with firing the TOZ 128 times, but instead of act using it to, to get the seven-way shot, it mentioned accessing a bonus level. But I was not able to confirm this anywhere. So I think it's just a, a misprint on a couple of websites. Uh, it definitely could be. It could be that, uh, or maybe uh, was put in for April Fool's joke on there. You must, what was it? You must defeat Shenlong in order to beat me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me if, if it was a uh, EGM joke at some point. That could very well be. It could be. Let's move on to the graphics. It's bright, it's colorful, and Bob Ross would have been proud. <laughs> I, I have to agree. It's, it's, it, as mentioned earlier, it's one of the first titles to really give the Genesis that title of bringing the arcade experience home. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of games, a lot of the early Genesis games during that era, people complained about not being as bright or colorful as they could have been, or some of the games had kind of a dark and dingy look. Gyrus doesn't have that at all. It's very bright, and it's very vibrant. And I think it's a good early example of a game on the system that really takes good advantage of the the color palettes that are available for the, for the console. Not only that, it does a great job of making 
use of the sprites in there. Those bosses on there, the parallax scrolling, there, I mean, everything is distinct enough so you know what it is. This is one of those games where I didn't have any frustrations with where a bullet a bullet came out of nowhere or something like where I could there are a couple spots on there where I had some problems with the parallax scrolling caused me to have a little, a little bit of trouble focusing on my ship but it wasn't really anything that detracted from the overall experience it's not like the, later on when we're talking about like uh, Ghostblade when you get those nice pink bullets that blend into everything there wasn't anything like that here yeah I mean you know I, I... I put in the notes, you know, there there are a couple of spots where, you know, there's some wavy backgrounds or or things like that that can be distracting. But in stage three or something, or the beginning of stage two, or the end of stage one, as you're trying to focus on those feathers coming out of the boss. Yeah, I could see that. <clears throat> yeah, but realistically, the game just has a lot going for it graphically. I mean. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned here in the notes, each stage has multiple distinct visual set pieces. The bosses are huge and fairly impressive, I think. And there are some really cool graphical details, too. Like stage three, there's um, as you're kind of going through to the second half of the stage, you're sort of going into this, I don't know, like flying into this big temple or, or building or whatever, and there are these pillars, and on the sides of the pillars are these uh, sort of lamps with these flames that flicker, and there's you can see the light flickering against the pillar. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's not something that they had to do, but it was a nice little extra touch. Or when your ship is hit and explodes, there's this sort of rotating explosion thing that it does, or there's the rolling shield effect that you get when you collect the shield, and different things like that. And so it's it's really impressive a lot of the things that they do so early in the in the life of the console, and I think a lot of that is with the you know the eight megabit cart size. They were really able to squeeze a lot of stuff in there, plus. You know, some of the backgrounds, like you said, they get, they can be a little bit busy, but otherwise they're they're just impressive on the whole. Just like the the intro, I'll say cinema, you know, but like the intro uh, story segment that you see kind of during the game's attract sequence, you know, they're they're really well drawn character art, and there's not a ton of animation. But it's just it's all it's very impressive. Yeah, for a cartridge-based game. If you were if you were to be asked them on the seminal shoot 'em ups or shmups for the Genesis, this game would definitely be on the list, and it really draws parallels to a later title that would be, I mean, still as highly sought after, but Glaylancer. On there, I see a lot mm. of the same effects used in Glaylancer to grade it to doing the same thing, especially with the parallax scrolling and with the astro field in stage one of Clay Lancer, the sort of anime or cinema cutscene that are done on there, all these techniques that were pioneered in here were really brought forth later in Clay Lancer. We know that Clay Lancer is considered one of the best shoot 'em ups or shmups on the Genesis. Yeah, and that came out a year uh actually two years after uh Gyrus did. So you know, 
when when Messiah put that out, they were basically just pulling from the the Gaia's tool set, so to speak. And uh, you know, Clay Lancer has its own its own things that they did with it, but yeah, I mean, it really doesn't do that much beyond what Gaia's already did two years prior in terms of graphics and effects and and overall presentation. Now, one of the things that you did bring up in the notes here is that, and I completely agree, is some of the enemies look uh, just not really the bosses because they're really well drawn and draw attention to themselves. But some of the popcorn looks a little generic and it was taken, like it may have been taken out uh, of our slightly modified from a, a Gradius game. There, it, it just it, it doesn't do much to visually distinct itself from there. But that's really a minor gripe. Yeah, I mean, you know, stage four, I would say all the popcorn enemies in stage four are pretty generic and bland. But then you kind of get made up for that with the crystals popping down out of the out of the top of the screen or the fireballs, you know, shooting up from outside uh, out out of the the uh, star that you're flying over. Do you think that the fire was taken from uh, inspiration from Gradius 2, maybe? It's very possible. It's not from Thunder Force. I, I looked and saw that Thunder Force 3 came, was contemporary with this. So. Yep. Yeah, it's very possible this was a Thunder Force uh, or a Gradius 2 callback. Well, I mean, you should look at some of the inspirations we're in here where it definitely pulls from the Valus series, which is also telling it. The, you can see that within some of the design, especially the uh, shield, the sword and sword and shield lady at uh, the end of uh, was stage six, I believe. <laughs> yes, the people on my stream were calling it Mega Maid. <laughs> oh, geez, after we're referencing everything in here, we're going to reference Spaceballs now. Yeah. So, but I, I can see Valus reference here, which is a Telenet game. I could see definitely Gradius was referenced in here. Maybe to some effect, Thunder Force was referenced on here as like Thunder Force 2. Right. Some aspects on there. Where else do you think it pulls some inspiration from? I don't know. I mean, I think, I think this was just the interesting thing was is there's so much of this that you see in a lot of the games from this time period. So some of it might have just been just a lot of the same influences in anime and science fiction and, you know, other cultural touchstones that were popular among young Japanese developers during that time. Yeah, everyone's pulling from the same creative pool. That makes sense. They're the... One thing I have to say is I really liked the cinemas of this game. The, the characters were really well drawn and was not something that you expected to see on the Genesis. I, I know that there were some early games. I forget what the... Um, one of the, It's one of the release games for the Genesis where it's an anime game and I can't think of the name right now. But the, like the, the seven siblings or was it nine siblings? Something similar. It was a very popular anime that was seeing a revival around the time that Mega Drive came out in Japan that had those visuals, that crisp type. And I I guess you could say that 
as well when you have the Famicom and how the Famicom did so well with the cartoonish type elements that translate really well to to sprites this is the next level for it and it, it really showcases it and the art style really just pops yeah I mean the the character art during those story sequences I kind of got in terms of just the the overall design of it I got a little bit of a like a fantasy star 2 kind of vibe from it except that these character portraits are larger more detailed and look even more like kind of late 80s early 90s anime in style um, so this is a couple years prior to either of the cd add-ons coming out in japan uh, for either the pc engine or the mega drive so those are, are just really impressive for their time and are really w well rendered drawings that I think, you know, you can definitely see that, like you said, the same kind of art style present in the Valis series. And uh, I think that holds true. Well, what's interesting is now I know that this they were just beginning to get this within here and the, the Mega CD was a quite a while away. But the PC Engine CD was released October 30th, 1987, which is extremely what? early. Yes, in Japan. Uh, because NEC was a huge <clears throat> into the PC or the CD ROM ROM into that stuff. Now, I know it didn't release into the US until a bit later, but it's to see that, that type of innovation on. Wow. There, yeah, it's something that, that <clears throat> would have been neat I, to see. I did not. I did not realize that the that the CD-ROM unit released that early in Japan. Yeah, in Japan, the CD-ROM-ROM came out much earlier than anyone expected, and it was it would have been really cool to see like this type of stuff. Now I understand that they sort of prototyped this with Valus Two renovation, but you, you could sort of see where they were headed on there. I, I'm trying, I'm not sure on Valus's Two release date, but I would have to think it would be somewhere within like 91 or 92 <clears throat> and then we have the i mean look at uh annette uh annette again i can't annette Futatabi oh for the annette Futatabi. yeah for the yeah. mega cd uh, ernest evans i believe was uh, if i remember correctly was a mega cd in, at least in japan and the, all the all the stuff that renovation they were at the forefront of this technology and really embraced CD-ROM technology. Look, look at about all of the. Um, uh, was it not Ninja Assault? But there's a. They did several of the full motion video games. Re Renovations was in charge oh. of bringing everyone's favorite Road Avenger. Huh. We all know how much everyone loves Road Avenger. If you don't, go try it and you'll love it. Huh. But it, I mean, it really was at the forefront. Renovation at the forefront edge of technology and did a lot to bring it forward it's too bad that the consumer wasn't quite ready for it yet for a lot of the stuff but it would have been amazing to see what they do and i hope that someone again with the release of the <clears throat> mega sd from terra onion creates some sort of visual enhanced version of this was maybe some red book audio or something on there would be wonderful to see uh. and speaking of the audio would you like to uh, take us in yeah, 
kind of my read on the game's audio is that the the sound effects sort of run the gamut from unobtrusive to annoying. Uh, there, a lot of the sounds I think are pretty solid. You know, your standard iVulcan sound effect is pretty pretty low low impact and just kind of gives you that light pew pew sort of effect. Whereas uh, a couple of the weapons like the <clears throat> the G beam or you know, a couple like that, when you're shooting the G-beam against metal or, you know, a larger enemy that is going to take several hits to take down, because the G-beam is a lengthy laser, it's making this sound effect when it's, when it's coming into contact with the enemy. So it's sort of like, it's weird to hear a laser making a sort of clanking, clanging noise on metal when it's firing at it, but that's what it does. And so that gets a little bit old and a couple of the other weapons have slightly annoying sounds, but on the whole, I think the sound effects are, are pretty, pretty solid. There's also an interesting sound with the, the TOZ when you launch it. I can't really describe it. You just have to hear it, but the, the TOZ kind of makes a, a cool noise when you launch it, but the soundtrack to the game I think is pretty strong compositionally. I do wish that Telenet had been able to use a broader and more diverse sort of sound font or instrument set, if you will, within the Genesis sound. Um, because you heard, you, you know, you hear what a developer like Technosoft was able to get out of the system, even as early as Thunder Force 2. But the tunes in the game are quite good. I just don't think they sound as good as they could if Telenet had a little bit better command of the sound hardware. But having said that, they're pretty catchy, and uh, I, I definitely enjoy the soundtrack in this game. Yeah, I definitely enjoy the soundtrack as well. Uh, it, I would rate it as good to very good, but not great i mean it doesn't have that amazing soundtrack as you get from lightning force but keep in mind this is at 1990 so i think it does a lot better than most games were and should be commended especially for not using gems oh right thank you for not making my ears bleed so <laughs> you know i am well i won't find myself humming a lot of the songs in here i also won't have my ears bleeding so it's it's definitely good, but it's not something that you're going to be listening to. And I don't think it's something that we're going to see put the soundtrack for on vinyl and see a huge demand for the soundtrack outside of the game. Yeah, that that's a vinyl album that I'd probably buy just because I enjoy the soundtrack. And I do, I do, that's one of those where I'll put it on as background music sometimes, but it's not one of my go-to's. Uh, it's just one that, oh yeah, you know, I haven't listened to the Gyra's music in a while, but it's not, it's not one that I'm gonna go to on a on a frequent basis. Yeah, like 1942, right? That's everyone's go-to. <laughs> right. All right, you want to take us in a little bit on scoring? Yeah, uh, the the scoring in the game is pretty basic. There aren't really any tricks, um, other than. You know, we kind of mentioned this during the question of the month, but there's a couple of bosses that will shoot out missiles. So there's a little bit of milking that you can do with those shooting out the missiles and 
not shooting at the boss as much so that you can do that kind of a thing. Or I think one of the mid bosses in stage five, you can sort of, if you can find a way to sort of hang out toward the bottom of the screen, you can try to avoid hitting the boss and shoot a bunch of the fireballs that come out from the bottom and get those. But realistically, there's not much going on. The one thing I'll say is in stage two, the uh, underwater section, there's this sort of coral that is all over the screen. And so it's similar to the Life Force. kind of pink, fleshy stuff in Life Force or the what we called the, the gravy and meatballs section in, in Gradius 3, where you kind of have to bore through the sand. And so if you have the G-beam, you can kind of go up and down and, and clear out all of that. Um, I will say the T-Braster is not great for that section, uh, but you do get points for every little snippet of that coral that you, that you grab or that you shoot down. It's little point values like in the single digits, but it is a few extra points that you can glean. And so if you, if you like being able to eke out every last little bit of score in, in a game, that's at least one one thing you can do to uh, maximize that. Otherwise, that's about it. All right, and speaking about that's about it, let's take a look at some of the thoughts of the RFGen community. We've got some thoughts here from Saturday Development. Just got my copy today. Count me in. Later post, answering Gamer707B's question. We just go for the high score during the month. Getting a 1cc would certainly help. Later post. I'm not getting past level 2 on a single credit, so I haven't had any scores worth reporting. But I'll try to drop in one over the weekend. I'm going to try the T-Braster. Or T-Blaster trick. It makes some extra firepower will help. And I definitely have to say that... As strange as it sounds to say this... Level 2 seems to be a, a sticking point. It took me a little bit to get through that. I don't know if that's just uh, the, the, the cave terrible 2s rearing their head or what that is. This game, this game is hard. Everyone will tell you the game is hard and requires memorization. With, with, game, with these type of classic games, memorization is a necessity. Especially if you're dealing with something like R-Type. Or tech even Gradius three, but this this game more so is one that requires you to know what's coming before it actually shows up on screen. Would you agree? Yeah, stage two was kind of always the early wall for me a couple of decades ago when I first picked up this game used, and you know this is always one of those shmups that I never really put a lot of time into. It was always I haven't played this game for a while. Pick it up, drop it in the Genesis you know, bang away at it for 30 minutes or an hour, get frustrated and then put it away and move on to something else. You know, it was never a, it was never a game that I dug into very seriously until, until now. And, um, so yeah, stage two is definitely a, uh, a step up in difficulty from, from stage one enough to where it can be an initial, an initial wall. Uh, Steve Ovig joined and said, can we use the Genesis Mini to play it? And uh, then, oh, never mind, I see the above post. Count me in, even though I probably won't do well. (laughs) 
And uh, we don't know how well you did, Steve Ovig, because I didn't see any other posts for, from you. So uh, let us know if you put a lot of time into it, because I didn't. We didn't see anything else. Well, hopefully you did well. All right, our next one is from Gamer707B. Count me in. I love this game. Still have my copy. Back in the day, I remember seeing the ads for this game and thinking it reminded me of another beloved Genesis series, Fantasy Star. Well, I wonder which ad that is. I don't have to ask him because uh, if I saw the mullet ad, I, that would not remind me of Fantasy Star. Huh. <laughs> but, but I definitely understand and that the artwork definitely does. Let me mention this area within the portraits or the anime cutscenes. The theme and overall style was very similar. So how does this work? Play it for a month and take pictures of high scores, or who can do a 1cc? Later post. I was wondering why nobody's talking about this game. I guess nobody uses the shmup forums, or the, the farm forums, as Mark would call it anymore. Why? I'm assuming people migrated... I'm assuming... Excuse me. I'm assuming people migrated here. Anyway... Got to level 3, a total score of 270,392 on my first credit last night. Playing this game again reminded me of how great and underappreciated it is as a 16-bit shooter, and also how hard it is. Man, is it challenging, but very good. Later post, <clears throat> the key to a lot of this game, as you know, is picking the right weapons at certain times. I personally use the thick laser. I like that back then, the, the G-laser. I want the thick <laughs> laser. Get early on in level 1 for most of the game, but for level 5 dragon, I switched to something else. He goes out pretty quick. It's been a while, so I don't remember offhand. Once I get there, I'll let you know. Later post, you're ripping it up, bro. I struggled on level 3, but eventually made it to level 4. At this rate, you'll be done with the game in no time. Are you going for 1cc or just clearing it? It's nice to hear that you ripped and teared your way through the game. Huh. I Later post, I did four credits yesterday before work. I got to the middle of level three on one credit. Then I used the remainder credits and ended up on the second mini-boss of level five. I forgot there were two mini-bosses on this level. I'm going out of town for work next couple days, but I'm having a go at it when I get back. Love the 16-bit shooters. Later post... Alright, just got back into town yesterday and looking forward to playing some more credits. How's your progress, bro? And where is everybody else? Besides us two, everybody else has gone silent. And I have to apologize for that. I have been silent on that. Not so much of my own volition, but uh, due to everything going on with COVID. So hopefully we will get back on track, get this train back on the tracks here and get everything back on a regular schedule. Okay, so just did a playthrough and got to level 6 boss, the female mech with a sword. Uh, the Valis soldier, or the, uh, what you call it, the Roomba Mega maid? Maid. Oh, Mega Maid. <laughs> Roomba. Roomba Maid. <laughs> Not so much room to maneuver in this one, it's pretty tight. Later post responding to Fomacho's frustration, stage 2 boss. What I do with her is I shoot in the middle of her shell right when the fight starts. Then right before she shoots the three missiles, I go above her and to the right, ending up almost in the middle of the top of her shell. That way her missiles can't get me. Rinse and repeat until the shell opens. I'll let you figure the rest out. You'll have more fun that way. Later post, I have taken a week off from it, but looking forward to getting back to tomorrow. Not thinking of 1cc, but maybe a 2cc or 3cc. 
I remember playing originally in one CC unit, so now I'm just happy completing it. And this final post. Okay guys, did my last playthrough today, got to level 501 credit, and used another credit to pass it and get to level 6. After two credits, I gave up. In all honesty, I just don't have the desire to keep pushing. Being that I cleared the game a while ago, great game though. Certainly one of my favorites this generation, maybe top three. Look forward to doing the Shmup of the Get Month game ne next to uh, something I have yet cleared. Too bad Thunder Force 4 and our type have already been done. Those two games I've yet to clear. Oh, no, let nothing stop you get in the way of trying our, to clear Thunder Force 4 and our type. Those are great games, and I still continually go back to those. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I would say, you know, carve out time for those regardless, because they're both worth worth your time. Especially now you can uh, play so Thunder Force. Dingo... Sorry, I was going to say, especially now you can play Thunder Force 4, uh, and, well, even R-Type, with R-Type dimensions on the Switch. Really great, great way to oh, play yeah. those when you have a moment. For sure. Uh, Dingo jumped in and said, Count me in. Seems like an interesting title. I only remember seeing Jeff Gersman of Giant Bomb do a play session of this at one point. And then later in the thread, he says, Yeah, for sure. Kind of like a more direct and primary version of the G. Darius capture mechanic. Speaking about the TOZ system. Uh, just started playing for the month. Flying Demon Boss ended my run pretty quickly. Definitely going to have to hang on to as much of that shield power-up as possible. And I want to say that he was referring to the Stage 1 boss, and I because I know he came into one of my streams, uh, or a couple of my streams, and so I was giving him some advice on, on what to do with that Stage 1 boss. And he said, uh, I just learned of ZZ Bad Nasty's diabolical schemes. I hope I can learn to use the... better learn to use the uh, TOZ system. Uh, he also says power up system is pretty unique. Faster speed is or fastest speed is super fast. Uh, our next post is from Full Macho. Hi there. I started listening in December and now I'm ready to join the friendly competition. Welcome, glad you joined us. I'm planning to get my hands on the cartridge and play on my CRT, but I also might try emulation with arcade stick. I'm newer to shmups, but already buying them faster than I can play them. I think they're just neat. And I have to agree, I think shmups are neat as well, and um, <laughs> join the club here on buying them faster than you can play them. It's a good problem yeah. to have. And in the thread, it was funny, because along with that post, he posted a uh, a picture that showed Marge Simpson holding some kind of thing, I don't remember what it was, and at the bottom it has her saying, I just think they're neat. <laughs> so, I thought that was funny. <laughs> Excellent. Later post, on his stream last night, Metaphor randomly got a different Taz weapon, F-Formation, what, what than, than what that enemy normally gives after searching info about it. I found that happened because he had a score of 10,005, and we discovered and later talked about the secret weapons and why that happens, which is a neat addition. Later post, I got luckily got the F-Formation myself last night. It too does not last past the end of the stage. The 120 attempt power-up feels so much like a 90s April Fool's joke, since most of the description of this is the same sentence copy and paste around the end, and there's no YouTube proof I can find. But the giant bomb page is the best, most original reporting I've seen on it, 
in all weapons, so I'll give it a try. <laughs> I completely agree. And we talked about this earlier. It seemed like a fake EGM April Fool's joke <laughs> that you get from the, the uh, Quartermaster. <laughs> or maybe from Sushi X. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the first mini boss is a great spot to grind deploys, especially if one of the corners is a safe spot. Yes. By placing the TOZ right in front of the ship, it's not hard to create one. On the Clan Mermaid Stage 2 boss, the patents forced me to the top of the screen, and by placing the TOZ just right, I'm safe to fire away. And it's a strategy that really works well, again, with the Gradius here, too. You can get used to placing your option, so that way you can do the most, and uh, hit the weak point for maximum damage. <laughs> So far, it's been brutal to die. I see where you get five lives and not three. After dying, I often lose multiple lives just trying to get started again. Again, we're dealing with the Gradius Syndrome on here. It's definitely hard to do, but definitely not as hard as the Gradius games themselves. Right. Later post. I took a week off playing Gyarus and put some time in the Castlevania Blumlides on the Switch collection. But now I have a Genesis and a Gyarus cart. So I got that hooked up and after working with a bit of cleaning. I was previously playing on Raspberry Pi. And honestly, this is the first time I played on Genesis other than a faint memory or two. Wow. <clears throat> Impressive. The Genesis is definitely worth driving and delving into the library. There's so much good games on there. But I mentioned Bloodlines on there. You have Sonic the Hedgehog, Fantasy Star on there. <clears throat> do you take take it or leave it with Ristar on there? That's not for everybody, but it's still a great game. <clears throat> there, you have Quackshot on there. There's so many good games to try out there. Congratulations to you, sir. Yes, and uh, a quick shout out to Easy Racer from the site who uh, just compiled a list of the top twenty uh, Sega Genesis games as chosen by RF Generation. And so that's on the front page of the site. Go check that out. <clears throat> the D-pad doesn't feel the greatest, so maybe I can get another controller from the used game store near me. But trying not to go out if I can't help it. Well, I completely agree on that. <clears throat> if, you have, if you're having some problems with the D-pad, one of the best things you can do, and this is just a <clears throat> tip on here, is to take some distilled water or filter water and boil it and then take the rubber membrane from the pad and boil in it, and that will help it regain some of its form. So that way it's nice and springy again. Yeah, just the rubber pad part, though. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> Please do not throw the entire controller in there. <laughs> <laughs> there, disassemble the controller first. Anyway, in the run... Uh, I did tonight and still defeated by the stage 2 boss. The run was really good and until then, so I'll make sure to get him next time. Later post. Thanks for the tips, y'all. I've gotten more comfortable with the D-pad and daily attempts to help them memor with memorization and strategy. I got halfway through stage 4 and the X-shapes centipede with a space worm was my end. Yeah, that really reminded me of R-type and uh, I was having flashbacks to stage 2 of R-type and the the Gigaresque-ness of it all. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that uh, we should touch on briefly since we didn't really talk about it before, but I noticed in that section that it really highlights the fact that your, uh, your hitbox 
in the ship is a lot smaller than I would have guessed. Um, you know, a lot of these games from this era, the, the hitbox is basically the ship sprite or the ship sprite, but maybe you have a pixel or two of leeway. But actually, the, the hitbox on this ship, for the most part, seems to be fairly forgiving uh, as compared to a lot of other shooters of this type from that era. So there's a couple situations where that doesn't necessarily apply or it seems like it's situationally not quite as, as lenient. But overall, it, uh, it definitely feels a bit more... Forgiving, yeah. Forgiving, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Metal Fro, I haven't caught your recent streams, but I want the T-Braster. T-Blaster, I'll move to the right side of the screen because I can fire off the T-O-Z faster and get the <clears throat> 6X I need. My personal best is currently sitting at 486,898. Good job. All right, later post, commenting on Metal Fro's issues with Stage 4 Snake section. There's lots of leeway with the rocks, but the large bullets always get a corner of my ship. I'm good at dodging when the, in the upper and lower left branches, but on the right side of the game's general limit on how far the ship can go to the edge gets me making errors. I might succeed with practice, but I think my best chance to clear the section is getting through in my first attempt when I still have the shield. Here's the shield power-ups I know of. No anymore in the first half of the game? Stage 1, after the mid-boss. Stage 2 after the two air-to-ground lasers. Stage 2 on upper tunnel on the second mountain. Stage 3, top of the screen a little ways in once the ship gets to the column section, usually right after fin finishing the second giant charging sprite. Stage 3 or 4, during or after the first snake fight in the city. I don't have a second controller, so I don't think I can access the stage select but maybe I'll go back to the emulator for practice. Yeah, and I didn't think that there was a that there was a shield in stage 5, but there is if after the mid-boss or after kind of the midway point in that stage you go and take the upper path, then you do have access to a shield. I have to say if you're searching for a second controller one of the best controllers for the Genesis I found has to be the M30, which is the 8-bit do or 8-bit do, depending upon how you pronounce it. The 2.4 gigahertz version, made specifically for the Genesis itself, really handles latency well or impact, input lag well and gives you that nice feel of a combination between the 6-button Genesis pad and a Saturn controller. I know that you recently picked one up for a Bluetooth version for your switch how do you like it bro i like it quite a bit uh i definitely see myself using that when uh when i play some non-shmups for the most part i think i'm probably going to handle most shmups on the on the switch with my my arcade stick but uh there are definitely some platform games and some non-shmups that i'm looking forward to playing on the switch with that controller because I, I do think it's probably an overall better D-pad and more comfortable even than the SF30. And not only that, if you catch your or the Amazon Stars Align, you can get it for just about $20 shipped with Prime, which is a great deal. All right, so would you like to go over the uh, plethora of high scores for the month? 
<laughs> yeah, plethora. Yeah, unfortunately, we only had two high score submissions for the month. Um, I managed to get the highest score. Uh, I hit 1,409,550 points, and that was because I managed to reach the stage 7 boss on at least one credit. <clears throat> uh, and then Fo Macho, the previously mentioned, 486,848 points. Um, so we did not get score submissions from the other uh, the other participants. Um, so I would say, you know, don't worry about, you know, don't be self-conscious about a score. Submit anyway. You know, post pictures, show us your progress, and that'll be a great way for people to encourage one another to keep keep fighting and keep going at it because, um, you know, I really think that having that, that kind of team atmosphere and that sort of people rooting each other on really helps to, to kind of motivate those of us who are participating to, to keep doing so and to keep going back to a game. Uh, so please everyone submit your scores Moving on to our final thoughts for the game. I have to say that this is a game that I have wanted to dive more in depth to. And from the time I was able to spend with it, it did nothing but make me smile. It endured me more to the game. And I can see why it, you know, many, many, many years later, it's still very highly thought of. It has the parallax scrolling that you don't normally see that has the polish it has the large and colorful sprites it has the music that doesn't destroy your ears it really creates a very well package that encapsulates what mid not, I should say early 90s to mid 90s shooters will become it's one of the best of the 16 bit era and I think that it's, it's small issues on there such as the parallax scrolling maybe on there a little bit of the music not always being a hundred percent there and some of the issues on there we both had an issue where one of the small or popcorn enemies on the end of stage one decided to just sort of start fighting following us and got stuck mm. that became a little bit of annoyance on but overall those are such such minor minor things and, and overall the package is amazing I would recommend this to anybody who has even a passing interest in the Genesis as one of its standout titles and can easily see why it's still highly regarded today and why it's selling for such a high high price but it, it's one of those ones I'd say it's worth it to spend the money on yeah uh I, this is one of those games that I've always held in high regard, even though I always felt like I was kind of terrible at it. But the truth of the matter is, I just never put in the time to get good and learn the game at a very, you know, medium to high level. Having put in the time and played it for a month, I'm glad that I went back to it because even though I wasn't able to get the one credit clear, I did manage to beat it on, you know, like three credits or what have you. 
And so I still was able to get to the final boss and see the end credits and the end sequence and all of that. Um, and it was a it was a rewarding experience. I would still like to get the one credit clear at some point. I went back to it over the weekend again to give it a couple of runs and see if I could if I could do it. Wasn't able to pull it off, but I think this is one of those that I may pull off the shelf now and again to de-rust a little bit, find a groove, and try to get back to that that uh, boss rush level so that I can finally take down that stupid boss at the end of stage seven with uh, its kind of semi-ridiculous RNG. Because really, the final boss encounter is not that difficult. Uh, it, it's actually pretty easy in comparison. And so, if you can get past the stage seven boss, I would say, I'm not going to say you're home free, but it's certainly something where you, you should be able to fight your way through stage eight and beat the game at that point without too much additional effort. So I would say, yeah, this is definitely worth, worth looking into. And if you can find it somewhat cheaper, I would say pick up a copy. The prices that it's commanding these days for even just a cartridge only copy are a little bit ridiculous. You know, I mentioned on my stream when I picked it up 20 years ago, I bought it for five bucks. Um, you're not likely to find it for five bucks these days unless you get lucky and, you know, get it at Goodwill or a pawn shop or something. But, but it, but it is definitely worth, uh, putting some time into and learning the ins and outs of how to use the TOZ system because as I've mentioned in, uh, you know, previous, uh, previous episodes, I, I really like that sort of enemy lock-on mechanic where you somehow lock on to an enemy or harvest an enemy or, you know, capture enemies in some way. And, and this is just one iteration of that. And so it kind of makes me sad that Telenet and Renovation, you know, they published a decent number of shmups, but this is the only one they ever developed in-house. I feel like if Telenet could have kept going and could have honed their craft in this sense, we could have seen either a sequel to Gyra's uh, later in the Genesis life or possibly in the 32-bit era or something else that they could have done that maybe they could have learned from the successes of this game and then kind of taken stock of the reviews at the time to see what people didn't like about it and gone back with a second effort that could have been something really special. But I would say for for a one-off, you know, this this kind of reminds me of of Einhander in the sense that Squaresoft put out this one amazing shoot-'em-up game and they never really visited the genre again. Um, and in their case, even though it would be nice to see a sequel to that or something else in that vein, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good example of something that they visited once and never did again. I don't think this is quite on the same level as Einhander, but I do think that for its time and as early in the life of the console that it was, Telenet Japan should have been very proud of what they did 
and it's it's a flawed experience, but it's a very strong experience at the same time. So hats off to the development team for a pretty strong shoot 'em up that really has some unique elements and plays well to the strengths of the of the hardware. Yeah, I really would have loved to see what they would have been able to do with this, like a Sega CD or Mega CD upscale of this. Similar to, I mean, I was impressed by Android Assault or Revenge of Bari Arm. Mm, yeah. That reminded me a lot of what this game could have been turned into had it gone to full CD support. I, I guess maybe even a better one is to do um, Musha to... Uh, to Robo Robolus, yep. I mean, you get you get that sort of addition. You take the core gameplay, you add your Red Book audio on there, some really weird FMV, <laughs> you, <laughs> but you may, but you you get that sort of that nice scaling rotation that the Sega CD can bring to it, and I I think that would have really done well for something like this a renovation as as a sequel it's a shame we won't be able to see this <clears throat> if if you're curious about this i think that going the route of the genesis mini will probably be your best bet so that way you're actually <laughs> have a legal version of this that you can try out without spending too much money on it. it's a good gateway absolutely all right. Well, speaking of gateways, or in our case, segways, let's talk about what's coming next. Well, as we're recording this, we mentioned earlier, we're sort of in the middle of April, and we're deep into Steel Vampire, which is an excellent doujin shmup that, <laughs> like an onion, has layers that you must peel back. Thankfully, though, it won't make you cry like an onion. There, I have been, <laughs> <laughs> I have been thoroughly enjoying the time that I put into it, and there's a lot of stuff going on here, which seems sort of like a, a simple <clears throat> ketsui point blank everything and, and keep going at it until it goes to turn into something that's deeper, more rewarding within each playthrough, and has been refreshing. It, it's sort, it's more, it's definitely more manic and. More surprising and nice not to de- have to deal with perfect routing all the time that you get in your cave style Damaku games. So it's definitely worth a shot. I think it's probably between 10 and 15 bucks at most. Usually it's on sale on Steam. So if you're curious on it, it's definitely a game to pick up and try. So come on, join us. Yeah. Uh, and then in May. 2020, we are going to be finally taking on Opa, Fantasy Opa. Zone. Yeah, Opa Opa. Opa! So, <laughs> yeah, so we're finally going to be playing Fantasy Zone from Sega. And as I mentioned in my YouTube video that I did announcing this, there are so many different ways to play this game, so many different versions and iterations that there's almost no excuse to not join us because. You can play this on a whole bunch of different consoles, uh, including the Switch now with the new Sega Ages release of the game. Uh, and so if you own this on any of your consoles, I would encourage you, please come to rfgeneration.com forums 
and sign up to participate with Fantasy Zone because uh, I would love to see a lot of impressions of this game and and you know different takes based on the various console ports and versions because there's a lot to talk about with with uh, all of that. I think it's worth putting a special subcategory for Arnold Palmer Tournament Golf. Yes, well, I picked up a copy of Arnold Palmer Tournament Golf because of the hidden one stage of Fantasy Zone. And so I plan on doing that on stream. I think the the way to unlock it is you have to uh, hit the ball 99 times on the first hole or something like that. Uh, So basically just sort of tap the ball a whole bunch of times and not ever sink it, and then it unlocks. Uh, what, what's the guy's name uh, from from Happy Gilmore? Just tap it in. Just tap, tap it in. <laughs> oh, man, I can't make it. It's 2020. I can't make a Happy Gilmore reference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Please come and join us. Come join the fun. They're sheltering in place. It's a good time to play video games. So come join us. Indeed. I would like to thank uh, Sarah Flash of Studio Mudprints. Excuse me, Studio Mudprints, Bullet Heaven for the logo. We have our own uh, podcast shirts, which you, uh, if you've seen Sir Flash's live streams, you may have seen him rocking the orange version. We'd like to also thank Kogasu for the intro and outro music. Everybody who joined us for, <clears throat> for this month's playthrough. I'd also like to thank everyone at the RF Gen Playcast and Collector Cast. Everyone who's participating in the RF Gen NES Challenge. And I'd like to thank Metalfro for streaming the Shmup Game of the Month. It's not easy with those dogs around, so we... <laughs> 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 good luck yeah, with the, that. The chua- my, my chihuahuas don't make uh, shmupping on stream easy. But uh, I manage, and uh, I haven't streamed Steel Vampire as much as I could or should, but it's been a weird month, so uh, definitely hoping to finish out strong here this next week, uh, and um, and then hopefully stream and play a lot of Fantasy Zone. I think that Steel Vampire is going to win for strangest story ever in a shmup. Huh. Uh, have you read might. over the story for that thing? Oh my goodness. Uh, not yet. It makes text maxim. Looks like Shakespeare. <laughs> oh, I'll have to check that out. Uh, well, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, uh, follow us on Twitter at shootcorecast, or you can follow me directly at GameboyGuru. Uh, join RFGeneration.com. Again, that is free. And join us for a Shmup Club playthrough. Uh, also, if you're uh, listening to the podcast and you like what you hear, give us a subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast uh, platform of your choice. We are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. Uh, also, check out the RF Generation Discord channel, which is linked from the front page of rfgeneration.com. And check out the dedicated Shoot the Corecast topic where you can discuss the Shmup Club Game of the Month, uh, the latest episode, or just shooting games in general. And uh, as mentioned, follow me on Twitch. Um, I am twitch.tv slash gurugameboy. 
And uh, follow me there to get notifications of new streams so you can see when I am streaming the Shmup Club Game of the Month. Anything else we need to hit on before we get out of here? Well, I just say whether you want to shoot the bleep or shoot some uh, popcorn and games, come check us out. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you and stay safe.